Welcome to Metropolis. It is December 6, 2023. I'm your host, Colin Datsipa. Today, we're going straight into Hello Goodbye Lines with Savannah Craig. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on, Savannah. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, honestly, honestly, I'm doing all right. Thank Mid- you for asking. Mid-early December funk? Mid-early December. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> Early to mid-December funk. Yeah, let's call it that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 not really, actually. Anyways. Besides the point, what do you have for us today? <laughs> uh, I have many things to talk about, but um, the first thing I want to get into is talk a bit about the slogan, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Mm, of, course, um, of course. I'm sure you've heard this slogan before. Um, for those who don't, uh, it's something that's said often at pro-Palestine protests. Um, and it's not something new. It's, it's a very old term. Um, but recently, this slogan has kind of come under fire because people are saying that it's a pro-genocide Mm. Uh, slogan, essentially, like a. Uh, How funny. so? They're 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 stating that some media outlets, some people, organizations are saying that this slogan means um, calls for essentially the termination of Israelis. Um, when the proper meaning of this slogan is calling for for freedom of Palestinians. So, I guess to break it out, break it down from the river, from the Jordan River to the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. Mm-hmm. Palestine will be free. And I think there's a lot of kind of dispute over this and, and you know, talking about like a one, one state Palestine, Palestine uh, uh, one state Palestine solution. So, mm-hmm. you know, a singular no Israel. Palestinian state. Exactly. Yeah. But a lot of what this um, slogan is really calling for is, is freedom for all Palestinians. So Palestinians in Gaza, Palestinians in, in the West Bank, and as well as Palestinians in Israel, because there are kind of three different levels of, um, I guess, citizenship, like a form of kind of passport that people have, uh, that they have different rights. So essentially, it's calling for you know equal rights for Palestinians and just essentially liberation, because under occupation and, you know, even Palestinians that live in Israel itself, uh, they, they don't have the same rights as Israelis. So, so I, guess, I guess part of it is, like, geographically, this, this um, slogan is trying to, it's not asking for liberation for Palestinians only in Gaza, only in the West Bank, only in Jerusalem, but, like, all over the, the area, from the, specifically from this, the, the uh, Jordan River to the sea. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think that, like, with, with slogans, especially, like, it can have... A different meaning for anyone. I think that some, when they do say this, they do see like a, a one-state Palestine solution, like a Palestinian state. But the initial meaning of this slogan is that exactly what you said, like liberation for for all Palestinians, um, because under the Israeli occupation and Palestinians living in Israel, as I said, like they don't they don't have equal rights. They mm-hmm. don't have the same freedoms. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that. I mean, it's like you're saying, right? It could be interpreted in so many ways, partly because it's such a, a slogan, any kind of slogan, catchphrase, any kind of short, pithy statement is like open to so much, right? But it's interesting that some people equate liberation to genocide or even liberation to a state, right? It's like I find there's... What's interesting about the, uh, the chant is, I guess, how people imagine liberation, right? Mm-hmm. For some people, clearly, it's genocide, which is appalling. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's pretty harmful that media outlets... Um, and organizations are kind of equating this slogan to being a genocidal term because it really does bring up a lot of a lot of fear for for Jewish communities, especially ones that you know have trauma within their family, um, intergenerational trauma from the Holocaust, um, and it kind of 
perpetuates this this fear um, and I think causes polarism within the movement. Um, polarism, sorry, between like, uh, you know, pro-Palestine movement and, you know, people who are kind of uh, being fueled by the media to have this fear that this is a genocidal term and this is what's being said at pro-Palestinian protests. So, so you think the people who are calling it a genocidal term are stoking that fear? I think that when media outlets uphold this term as a genocidal term and push that narrative, um, it's causing fear within these communities and mm -hmm. causing, um, you know, polarism between, you know, pro-Palestine and pro-Israel communities right, right. when we should be trying to have people listen to one another and, you know, really understand what Palestinians are going through rather than, you know, promoting the narrative that at these protests people are not calling for Palestinian uh, liberation. Um, instead, they're, they're through kind of angling this term as a pro-genocidal term, um, you know, they're taking away from what people are calling for, which is liberation under occupation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Of course, of course. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's really concerning to see that kind of uh, discussion being upheld, right? Because like we're talking about, there could be many kind of interpretations of it, but then you have this kind of one incredibly, incredibly, how do I say, emotive, this, this kind of, I mean, the genocide term is not like to be lightly used, right? And to, to, to pin that on such a, on such a statement is kind of um, reckless, even, I'd say, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's reckless, it's kind of like, it stokes fear. I feel like it doesn't move the discussion forward exactly like you're saying. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up, you know, the term of genocide is to not be used lightly. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's interesting that a lot of media outlets are quick to say that this is a genocidal term, but at the same time, they will not call what's going on in Palestine genocide. Right. Right, right. It's kind of uh, uneven. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there is the thing also about genocide. It's like we're talking about like power dynamics, right? The power dynamics, which, which gen the, like this supposedly genocidal, like the, it, the logic would go that the people using this term were to be genocidal. If they were a genocidal force, then do they have the power, the infrastructure, the means to be doing this? And clearly, I mean, as far as I could tell, it seems much, much more that they are the ones who have less power, Palestinians in this case, compared to the state of Israel. Because Israel has the backing of the international community and all the, I, I mean that in a derogatory sense, <laughs> the international community, major like uh, military powers, and yet this small population of two million, I think around, is supposed to be the genocidal one, and their territory is the one that's shrinking. And it seems to, I, I find there's this interesting comment I saw online about people who, regard uh, the chants from the river to the sea as genocidal, their interpretation of liberation, their interpretation of like, what, would, what do Palestinians want the most? And they interpret it as genocide, which is to me, like I, I, find, I think there's a tweet online where someone was talking about how it, and I don't necessarily agree, agree or disagree, but I think it's an interesting observation where this person was talking about how it's telling how these people view liberation or how these people kind of view uh, what Palestinians want. And it's almost as if they view what they want is just what's been done to them to a certain extent, right? It's like, I think sometimes you see this in like discourse around like land back, where like people are imagine land back as like, oh, they're just like, there's just people who are going to want to kick us out or like, you know, like raise every skyscraper and like make like bring teepees everywhere, which is like incredibly ridiculous. Uh, a ridiculous kind of uh, extrapolation of that kind of statement in the movement. It doesn't represent it at all. But I find it's, there's similar tones to that, to this, this uh, discussion around the, uh, 
uh, from the river to the sea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I, I've, I've been thinking too about, you know, the connection with land back. Um, and I think it's also just like it shows how limited people's knowledge is. Because, if you know, if they're so concerned about land back, take more time to look into it. Yeah. Talk to Indigenous people, do your research. And I think that's the same thing here um, with pal- like coverage on Palestine and Montrealers as well. If they're if they're afraid of these protests that are going on, it's in, it's important to, you know, be critical of the media that you're consuming. But you know, including your, ours, including ours. Um, not my, not me <laughs> only my guests. <laughs> <laughs> but do do your research. You know, understand the roots of this slogan. Um, I wanted to to bring something up on the screen. Um, Independent Jewish Voices, which has a very strong chapter here in Montreal. You've had people. Yeah, we had Nile and uh, Sarah on. That yeah. was a fantastic episode. Please, please go do watch that episode. Yeah, please do. They they put out a statement, um, essentially saying that that this is not hate speech, um, and a lot of uh, JV members, uh, specifically within the Montreal chapter, since these are the ones we've been connected with, um, have been doing a lot of work to to, to uh, separate the fact, you know, that, that anti-Semitism, um, uh, sorry, to, to separate, uh, you know, critique of Israel um, with anti-Semitism and essentially say, you know, these are not the same things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's critiquing Israel is not anti-Semitic. Um, and I think that this does connect to, to this statement and, and the work that they've been doing here in Montreal. Oh, yeah, that, that, that work has been doing incredibly, I think, vital work because you have this thing where, like, people conflate the state and, like, a people, right? Because they imagine, oh, whatever, you're, the state body, this kind of big apparatus is supposed to represent its people. And in certain countries where the people are a little more ethnically, religiously homogenous, then people imagine the state to also be a reflection of that ethnicity. And then any kind of criticism of the state is then understood as a criticism of the uh, under, like the people, the ethnicities kind of underneath it, which I find is um, a, a bad conflation. I think the only, th- that kind of conflation is one usually that these states want to try to, especially like states with a little more kind of like a, like a liberal ideology, want to uh, kind of further that. So any kind of criticism can be deemed as like a hate crime. Any kind of criticism of the state can be deemed as, as racism, uh, stuff like that. It's like, in, in my own activism, I've been plenty critical of like China, right? The Chinese state. I think people are very often uh, critical of China. And there are some times where it's like, you do have people who are critical of it in a way that's xenophobic, racist. And then you have other people who are just talking about like the machine of Chinese bureaucracy and the Chinese military, right? And you don't have that much, I don't know, it's a tough thing to like try and separate, but I find that kind of separation that groups like IJV is doing is like so crucial. Because otherwise, People imagine, oh yeah, you know, the Quebec state, François Legault speaks for all Quebecers, which is not the case. No, we know that's not the case. And I think any, anything to just put a wedge in the idea that a state has an ethnicity or a state is like free from criticism, I think, don't always be critical of the state. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. You know, it's like, it's like imagine like, like the way I imagine states and these kinds of like big like apparatuses is like a car or like any kind of machine, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you might have a car like let's say in this, in this case Israel, built by like uh, uh, Jewish people, some Jewish people, Zionists, mm-hmm. right? But then to, let's say the car is built in a bad way. If the car is hurting people, I'm like, hey, the car is running over people and like hurting people. And then it's like, oh, you're being racist. You know, it's like, no, it's, it's absolutely a, a wrong conflation because the state is separate from the people and from that kind of ethnicity. Anyways, they're doing incredible work. Thank, yeah. you, thank you for bringing this up. No, no, it's, it's very important what you said. And I, I think it's, 
we need to critique, like I said before, media outlets, but, but politicians as well. I think that Trump was such a good example where so many people were saying, well, they voted him in. But it's like, after we vote someone in, we shouldn't stop applying the pressure. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, we should continue to, as people are doing like this organization, you know, not just applying a pressure on Israel, but applying pressure on local governments or federal government to stop supporting Israel, um, specifically and often through like military exports. So I think that a lot of people feel kind of powerless outside of voting, um, but there's there's so much pressure to be applied. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of Lego, <laughs> uh, I know that on a few weeks ago on you the show... You think he's watching? <laughs> Are you watching Lego? He said it's okay. <laughs> Polls don't look too good. <laughs> Um, I mentioned on the show a few weeks ago that um, Quebec Premier François Legault, um, he said that he wouldn't take banning protests off the table, um, pro-Palestine protests, um, when at the same time, uh, a few weeks later, uh, Montreal Mayor Valérie Plante said that she wouldn't ban these protests. Um, So we have kind of like a, a different statement. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens, especially as Legault probably has more power over Valérie Plante, um, to do something like this. At the moment, you know, nothing has been banned, um, but ongoing critique is, is still happening towards these protests. That's so concerning, if they're going to ban pro-Palestinian protests. Because then you have, I think, I, I remember the, um, it was on CJAD, we, we showed a clip to that, of that to uh, Sarah Shami from uh, Palestinian Youth Movement. I think in the clip, Valérie Plante says, she's not going to be banning protests, you know, she believes in the freedom of the freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and it's kind of good to see her upholding that. And it's incredibly concerning to see a premier potentially talking about shutting down protests, you know, because then, then you get into like, well, you have the good kind of protest and then you have the bad kind of protest, you know, and it's like as soon as you're trying to draw that kind of distinction, then it's like there's going to be a lot of protests that are going to be deemed as bad protests that would essentially be uh, otherwise ones that I think the general public would support, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even outside of banning protests, you know, across the world, but specifically here in Canada and even in Montreal, some people have been losing their jobs, not just for going to these protests, but uh, specifically on social media, vocalizing support um, towards Palestinian liberation. Um, and this has actually been affecting uh, someone within our local government, uh, Montreal's commissioner for the fight against racism, uh, Bashra Manai, uh, is one of the most recent Montrealers to, to come out under fire for not just attending a pro-Palestine demonstration, um, but also vocalizing her support online. Um, we could check out the the image of her. Um, she's been vocal in her support uh, for Palestine, and she's been receiving calls for resignation uh, from the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, also known as Sija. Um, and part of these calls for her reg- resignation is while she's supporting the pro-Palestinian movement, um, she's coming under fire for not vocalizing enough support for the Jewish community that is experiencing anti-Semitism, um, and especially at the same time of, of sharing a clip uh, from a po- pro-Palestine rally um, and stating that she's proud of Montreal. 
for the for the rally for the pro Palestine rally yeah proud of Montrealers for for gathering on the streets and you know demanding for a ceasefire and, yeah. and supporting Palestinian liberation yeah. you, you bring up siege and this is one of the organizations that Nile and uh, Sarah talk about as being these kinds of institutions that try to like represent themselves as Jewish institutions right but specifically the distinction they're making they're not necessarily they don't speak for all Jews they speak for specifically like a Zionist project right and so here you have like if we're talking about IGV trying to do the work of Separating the idea of a state being inherently like uh, racial or ethnic, and you have the other one, which is trying to really combine the two to try and protect the state from critique, right? And I find it's uh, it's incredibly concerning. And the thing is, like, not to say that, that I mean, anti-Semitism and uh, Islamophobia is on the rise. It has been on the rise, especially any any time you have conflicts like these, you see those kinds of uh, tensions get soaked. Uh, I feel like I mentioned this before, but like during like all the uh, early COVID stuff, you had like anti-Asian racism, I think go up like 900% in like Vancouver. And you had like instances where you had uh, uh, the statues here at the Montreal Chinatown vandalized, right? And these are like the natural kind of like symptoms, the kind of fallback from these kinds of like escalations, right? Where these things are inherently like made to be much more tribal than they are. It's state versus it's state versus state or state versus against people that they're trying to oppress. And here we have people trying to say, no, it's actually like your people against my people. And it fi I find that always diffuses the actual kind of like, maybe I don't know the intentions, but I've, to me it diffuses like actual whatever like material analysis of like what, what's happening economically in this area. That's kind of because you know you don't have wars that just start off because like I don't like your people. It's almost always some kind of material interest, right? Like Iraq war. We can talk about that later about like uh, oil and like Kuwait. And I don't know. I, I find I'm, I'm always very skeptical when people are trying to do that kind of conflation. But and it's incredibly disheartening to see uh, someone who's trying to take a stand for it being punished, called to resign, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I don't know. It uh, doesn't seem to be heading in the right direction, but she's, she's still, she hasn't resigned. She hasn't resigned. She still has her job. Um, Sija was calling for her resignation. Um, another Jewish organization, B'nai B'rith, um, they did highlight that she's not doing enough to condemn anti-Semitism, but they did not request her to resign. Um, they did ask her to stop attending pro-Palestinian demonstrations, um, which she has recently, about a week ago, promised that she would stop attending. Mm. Um, so there's no resignation, but there's still kind of a form of punishment. And, you know, I, I think that there could be... It's important... I think for her to to recognize anti-Semitism and and, and address that, um, but I I believe that it is still a form of punishment asking her to not attend these protests. Yeah. No, because I mean it's absolutely. I mean I think trying to call upon our officials to do something about this kind of hate that's uh, that that's kicked up in the in, in this kind of uh, offensive is I think incredibly important. Like you have um, multiple multiple incidents, rising incidents of. Uh, of synagogues being attacked in like the West Island, they're being firebombed or like graffitied, and it's incredibly concerning. But it's like on that sense, it's like I think that's like a, to me at least whatever it means. I think a fair request, I think a, an important request, a just request. But then to ask her to stop attending the Palestinian demos, that's like I'm a little more uncertain about it. I, I think it's kind of a form of censorship. It is. It's like I think it's it's a form of censorship, but I think on the other hand. To um, these parties' intents, it might just because sometimes you, you see this with journalists, right? Where you want these representatives to be impartial, you want them to be kind of like not taking sides. And I guess to the neighbor, maybe they don't want her being so 
pro-Palestinian. They want her somewhere more in this kind of like obfuscated, like middle ground where like you don't know what their opinions are. I mean, that to me, that brings up another question, right? Like, because we're talking about people losing their jobs. We had those like, we had the CTV journalist, I think in the, uh, uh, was it a Palestinian C- uh, journalist for CTV, I think in the yeah. Atlantic region who was fired recently. Uh, there's a viral video of her kind of speaking about it in her car. We had that global news reporter from Toronto, I think, uh, last month. And it's like, it, I think there's a similar thing between journalists and politicians where it's like, should they have opinions? Should they have, should they do, are they more than just people who are supposed to represent whatever, like, uh, their uh, constituents? Are they more than people who are supposed to just give you the facts as whatever that means? And when can they be allowed to hold a stake? When can they be allowed to be like, no, actually, I think this is the right side of things. I find right now in the political sphere, at least like federally, provincially, you have a lot of parties who are kind of like a little more timid about, uh, Saying what should be done, and, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's what that's what that's what this whole case makes me think of. Anyway, mm-hmm. what do you what do you make of it? I think it's kind of dangerous grounds. Like it is, it's it. I believe it's censorship, and I think that it it kind of reminds me of you know what we're taught in journalism school. We we're no longer taught um, to be unbiased. We're taught to be fair and to be fair and balanced. Um, but I still think that, you know, even like when I was a student journalist, I did a lot of coverage um, on uh, Wet Sudan and, you know, uh, Land Back and things like this. And I remember one professor uh, would call me, he wouldn't call me a journalist, he would call me an advocacy journalist, which is like, what is yeah, that? <laughs> interesting. You want, you want to talk a little bit about what uh, the Wet Sudan coverage was that you're giving in case people don't know? Yeah, yeah. So uh, there was a project, uh, the Energy East pipeline that would run um, from the west coast to the east coast and you know some of this pipeline was proposed to go through indigenous communities Um, and rightfully so indigenous communities that did not want these pipelines to run through their communities were protesting you know there's a history of uh, I believe the term is called work camps or man camps um, where uh, workers on these pipelines, that's where they would stay, and there was often he- heightened rates of sexual violence, specifically towards um, indigenous women um, and other members of the community. Um, essentially ongoing colonialism for you know economic uh, profit, economic mm-hmm. gain by the, the federal government as well as um, massive corporations. Um, and... You know, a lot of my work that I've done and continue to do, you know, does provide a lot of space for people who don't necessarily often get a lot of space in the media um, and are people who, you know, experience ongoing colonialism forms of oppression. Um, And I think that in an assumption, because I don't know all of his feelings, but in this professor's eyes, uh, you know, because I provided more space, I wasn't necessarily being fair and balanced. Mm-hmm. Um, in my opinion, it was the focus of my story. Um, you know, I always made sure to speak to these uh, corporations. I in- included their interviews. If they didn't respond, want to have an interview, you know, I I did make the effort to try and reach out to them. Um, but often, you know, we would have an interview, mm-hmm. and I provided their angle. But uh, you know, apparently, that's that's not. Journalism, it's advocacy journalism. Um, And I think that, I don't know, I think I've strayed a bit from your question. No, Um, no, that's fine. That's fine. fine. You you, you take this conversation wherever you want to go. (laughs) I think that it's, it's, 
we're not robots. I think that journalists aren't robots, politicians aren't robots. We shouldn't mm-hmm. be expected. Um, no machines under here. <laughs> we shouldn't be expected to not have, you know, personal feelings, especially, you know, people who are, you know, I'm, I'm sure that she's probably experienced racism in her life, forms of mm-hmm. oppression. So I can't assume, but, you know, something within this movement um, is she's feeling a connection to it. And she, she being Bashra. Exactly. Bashra, what was her last name? Manai. Manai, Bashra um, Manai. And I mean, there's also very many white people who feel connection to the to Palestinian liberation, I think, because they, they see what's happened in Canada. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we, you know, we do land acknowledgements here. We're starting to have education slowly about, you know, the terrible atrocities that mm-hmm. have been and still are committed against indigenous people. So how do we go, you know, from you know making these land acknowledgments and you know identifying these that gestures yeah, yeah that it's such a terrible thing mm-hmm. um while allowing it to happen again allowing our own governments to to fund this and support it through military exports um and not calling for a ceasefire calling for a humanitarian pause and like look look how great that went you yeah, know of course, of course. um so i think that in a case like this you know, I think that it's fair to call for her to to support communities um, who are experiencing anti-Semitism as well as Islamophobia, but to to tell her not to go to pro-Palestinian protests anymore, yeah. censorship. It's like if we're talking about this thing where, like, if um, I haven't seen the benign birth request from her or the the open letter, but like if the request is for her to stop attending these protests for whatever reasons of like we don't we want like this public official to not be like advocating for like one side in this kind of uh, conflict. Then why is that not being asked of Jeremy Levi, the mayor of Hampstead, who was saying that, like, uh, very one-sidedly, uh, on the side of Israel, he was saying anyone found taking down the posters of uh, there's some in in Hampstead, there's posters, and uh, even around Montreal, you'll see them of uh, posters that profile uh, some of the hostages that uh, Hamas has taken, mm-hmm. and these are clearly like pro-Israel kind of uh, posters. Some in some cases, I know in Verdun, some people have been taking them down, and that's, that's kind of like this kind of a. I don't know what you call it, like a little poster war kind of happening in the streets. Um, Jeremy Levi was talking about if anyone is found doing this in Hampstead, they're going to be fined $1,000. And then he also said the $1,000 will be sent to Israel, right? So it's like, if we're talking about Bashra being an advocate for Palestinians, which is like she's attending protests, right? Which is like, I think, a different level than like setting policy and then potentially giving financial aid to Israel, even though Israel does not need $1,000 from Hampstead. But it's like, it's the intent, right? It's the intent is the actual level of, like, <laughs> aid. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Hampstead. <laughs> it's interesting, because you have this kind of, you have this thing. I remember um, you had, um, uh, there's legal <laughs> experts, I'll call it, who was talking about that legislation, that kind of policy in Hampstead. And they're talking about the issue of that is, like, once again, you're kind of talking about there's posters that you can have up and there's posters you can't have up, right? And there's sort of an infringement of, freedom of speech there, and there's definitely a level of one-sidedness, right? And I'm like, if that is, if this kind of thing about one-sidedness, don't attend Palestinian protests, is going to be assigned to uh, Bashram and I, then why is that not being also assigned to Jeremy Levi, right? Mm-hmm. So clearly there's this, like, I mean, we, we know why, because mm-hmm. clearly, like, this is, like, um, our, these institutions, for the most part, do support other large institutions to kind of benefit off each other uh, financially, and you know, I, I find you really see the depths uh, to which people are willing to exert influence to support, like, a state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a classic example of that. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, I think I'd be interested to, to come back and 
you know, have us follow how this goes, but... Mm. I'd love to have you back on. Yeah. I think I had a moment where I just, like, zoned out there, and I was just thinking about, you know... A thousand dollars. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I knew about the fine, but I didn't know what was going to Every Israel. cent will be sent to Israel, is what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's, it's on, on that extent, you have, like... I think I've, t- I've talked about this before, where you have, like, cities kind of committing to, like... We commit to ceasefire in like uh, it was like I think it was Burnaby in Toronto, uh, Mayor Olivia Chow in Toronto who called for yeah. a ceasefire and I don't know, which I think is interesting because before like weeks before she was saying that like pro-Palestinian protests are like hate crimes, and you have also a, a lot of Toronto police arresting uh, Palestinian organizers for like uh, vandalism, but like a scale of which their vandalism department has never seen. So it's not really about vandalism. Vandalism is just like the the, the reason they grab onto mm-hmm. as an excuse to arrest these kinds of activists, right? Or was I going with this? Anyways, I think it's interesting seeing this kind of different, this spectrum of, like, what can cities do? On the one hand, you have some cities trying to uh, clamp down on protests. Uh, some cities are calling for a ceasefire. Some cities are saying that they're going to send money to Israel. Uh, and then you have other people who are asking for uh, uh, our ethics commissioner. What's your position? Oh, um, Bashra, Bashra I. She is Montreal's commissioner for the fight against racism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, wow. Okay. <laughs> no, yeah. <sighs> Collective <laughs> sigh. That's all. Audience just. <sighs> good to take a breath yeah yeah it is this is gonna become in time this is gonna be so stressful I'm gonna make this into like a wellness show I'm like hi everyone <laughs> we're gonna do some breathing exercises some yoga yeah roll out your mat <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um to continue on with Manai Brith um they told Manai that they want Montreal to adopt adopt uh, the International Holocaust Remembrance Reliance's working definition of anti-Semitism um Several provinces in Canada have, have adopted this uh, as a way to stand with Jewish communities. Um, I'll read out the definition. Um, uh, this was, uh, yeah, this was Benibris, uh, uh statement, um, essentially uh, towards Bashram and I, uh, you know, asking her to, to address anti-Semitism. Um, the definition uh, is... This is a really good graphic. <laughs> they made her look so angelic in this. Yeah, she kind of looks like she's in the clouds. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's going on here? Bubbles? I think so. I think so. Interesting. <laughs> we gotta step it up with our graphics. I know. I know, I know. <laughs> no, yours are great. I love yours. <laughs> are we gonna talk about your graphic? <laughs> no, <laughs> let's not talk. <clears throat> Moving on. Sorry, sorry about that, folks. Okay, so uh, I'm gonna read out the International Holocaust. Remembrance Reli- uh, Reliance Working Definition on Anti-Semitism. The IH- IHRA definition, I believe uh, the group's called it. Yes, thank you. Now we can say that, I don't have to... <laughs> you're, you're welcome. <laughs> you're freed. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews, which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed towards Jewish and non-Jewish individuals and or their property towards Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. Um, it goes on to list uh, more examples of this definition and kind of go in more, uh, it, it, including uh, Holocaust denial, um, which is actually illegal in Canada. Um, and it does explain that criticism of Israel uh, does not count 
as anti-Semitism, um, which I think is really important to to identify within their their clarification. They're saying criticism of Israel is not anti-Semitism. Oh, interesting. Which I think is so important because a lot of there's been a lot of discussion around you know anti-Semitism and. Unfortunately, while it's so important to to call out, you know, the attacks that are going on in Montreal that that are anti-Semitic attacks on on synagogues and, and other places, um, but a lot of uh, some organizations and some people are calling any critique of Israel as a form of anti-Semitism. But clearly, in this uh, definition that they want to adopt, um, yeah, check it out. Yeah. It's right here. I don't have it exactly quoted, um, but uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think that's an important. It's something that I wanted to bring up, um, especially you know reflecting. I, I've spoke about it on the show before, but in October, um, the Ind- Independent Jewish Voices chapter in Montreal, they went to Ottawa to protest a two-day event being hosted by CJA, which is the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Um, and a part of this conference, uh, you know, many uh, politicians, some from Israel, uh, as well as uh, politicians from Canada, including Jagmeet Singh, attended this, this two-day event. Um, and Sija was calling for um, Canada and, and leaders specifically to adopt a definition of anti-Semitism that included critique of Israel. Mm. So this... As, okay, sure. Exactly. So this wouldn't be the same definition that, that I called out. It would actually call for critique of Israel to be defined as anti-Semitism. Um, and IJV members were there, uh, you know, essentially discussing the harms of this being adopted uh, because that I, I think that the concern that's there is that if a definition was like, a definition like this was adopted, um, you know, then we probably could see more fueling of, uh, you know, pro-Palestinian demonstrations and support, uh, not necessarily just being condemned, but, you know, uh, being prevented. I know, I know the SPVM here. Uh, I think SPVM or the SDM uh, police, I think they were kind of looking at, like, some postering that was happening in the metros that was done by uh, pro-Palestinian activists, and they're trying to angle it as, again, through the similar angle of, like, oh, this vandalism is also a hate crime. And like, you definitely have these kind of attempts by, like, or, like, cities kind of, like, police apparatus that they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to find a way to clamp down on these protests or trying to find a way to stifle at least some of its, like, efforts, right, through this kind of hate crime lens. And, is this, I mean, this is clearly a result of the, of siege of benign birth, right? Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. also, yeah, 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 I don't know. Um... Uh, coming back to um, Menai, uh, just kind of discussing the, the critique and calls for resignation. Um, shortly after she started coming under fire, she did put out a Facebook post that, you know, recognized anti-Semitism. Um, she said that Islamophobic and anti-Semitic reactions are strong, exacerbated by daily life in Palestine over the last 30 days. Um, clearly... This is not a recent post, it's an older post. Mm-hmm. Um, if the violence in Montreal must be condemned without any ambiguity, it is right here and now to call for an end to the offensive on Gaza. Yeah, um, and just a little bit more background on her. Uh, she was appointed the city's first ever commissioner for the fight against racism and systemic discrimination in January 2021. Um, and her role was created 
due to a recommendation uh, in a report stating that the city of Montreal turns a blind eye to racism. Um, she essentially advises uh, political bodies how to fight racism uh, and promotes Montrealers to know their rights. Um, she clarified that she does serve a city, but does not have a role in public representation. Um, and she clarified that her attendance of these protests uh, uh, stating that I see this individual stance as a duty of humanity, a personal stance, uh, that of a woman committed to peace, saddened by the horrors of this institution. Um, and uh, we, can, we can go to the, to the next slide. Um, Mayor uh, Valerie Plant uh, told her to re rebuild trust um, with community. Um, I just wanted to speak a little bit more about uh, anti-Semitism in Montreal. You did you highlighted uh, some of the things that have been going on, um, just to kind of clarify, on November 7th, uh, a synagogue and a Jewish organization uh, were the, the targets of an attempted uh, arson in Dolad des uh, in the West Island. Um, and another case was gunshots were fired at two Jewish schools overnight in Côte-de-Neige, Notre-Dame-de-Grasse. And uh, uh, this was on November 9th. And one of the Jewish schools that was targeted on November 9th, uh, the Yeshiva Gadola, uh, was shot at a second time uh, three days later. Um, and this article up on the screen, uh, it's a recent ar article in uh, Pivot. Uh, it identified that we must remain cautious um, not to connect the rise in anti-Semitism to pro-Palestine protests. Um, yeah, so for our listeners... This is an article in People by Una Barrett, Barrett, Una Barrett uh, Comprendre la montée de l'antisémitisme, so understanding the rise of anti-semitism. Alors, alors que la violence antisémite augmente à Montréal, il faut éviter d'accuser trop rapidement le mouvement pro-palestinien prévenant certains. So, yeah, exactly what you're saying. So, like, looking at the uh, anti-semitic violence that is rising in Montreal, it, it is important to avoid... Um, to quickly accusing pro-Palestinians, mm -hmm. uh, the pro-Palestinian movement. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. We in, in this article, um, a member of uh, Independent Jewish Voices, uh, Niall uh, Ricardo, who's been on the show. Shout out. Um, thank, <laughs> you for com thank you for coming on to the show, Niall. <laughs> if you're listening. Um, he was quoted in the article saying, most of the time when there are attacks on synagogues or Jewish schools, it's not people in solidarity with Palestine who mm -hmm. are doing it. It's white supremacists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's an incredibly impo important thing to know because I think you have this. It's, it's like I was saying before. You have this kind of tribalism that's activated anytime this war, right? You saw this with the war in Vietnam. You saw this with like um, when there was like World War II was happening, right? In like Canada and the U.S. The internment of Japanese uh, Canadians, Japanese Americans, because the idea was like they're going to have some kind of like allegiance to this. This was a country of their like origin, and sometimes some of these people had been here for like two generations already, right? And they consider themselves fully Canadian, fully American. But this idea that there's this kind of tribalism that they're going to resort back to is like I find I find preposterous. But I think I think now brings up an important point, right? Because then people start to expect that kind of tribalism, and then also people assign it to movements that are calling for peace, right? Because if we're thinking about oh, if a war kicks up this kind of like tribal hate against like other ethnicities. Then the simple answer would be just ceasing the hostilities, right? And then just working towards a peace, working towards a lasting peace. And the, the longer Israel I, is going to continue this kind of offensive, 
then the the more kind of hate you're going to see, right? Mm-hmm. That that's I don't know. That's to, to me to me the, the the way towards is kind of like to clamping down on anti-Semitism, clamping down on uh, Islamophobia is for a piece, and then also education, like you were saying before. Yeah. I think I really uh, I I wanted to say before the point you made about education, I find it so important, and which is why I think I appreciate the work of groups like uh, the Palestinian Youth Movement, among others, who are doing teachings, right, to try to break through that kind of like fog of like ignorance that exists. Because it's, yeah, anyways, because like you're saying, like we've been saying for like many episodes now, the media presents a very kind of like simple picture of this, a very kind of a uh, a, a a picture of this. That that lacks a certain kind of history, and it's, I think it's important that these groups are doing these kinds of teachings. And maybe like I think these are great opportunities, right? Like if you find you disagree, like if you, you the listener, the viewer, find you disagree with whatever like we're saying, or they're like, oh, I don't know much more about that. These teachings are that perfect kind of opportunity to do it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes at protest, it's good to kind of speak with the more like organizers or other kind of like protesters. But I, I find there's you just kind of have a charged error about it. You have to find the right person. But these teachings is like that's the time to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll quote another um, uh, another uh, uh, person who was interviewed um, in this article, uh, Kalman Emmanuel, uh, the, spokesper- the spokesperson for the Council of the Jewish Community of Montreal, said uh, in this piece, we don't know if these attacks on the synagogue and schools are linked to the pro-Palestinian movement, but with what is happening between Gaza and Israel, there are a lot of emotions coming from both sides, which can lead to violence, which I, I think really connects to what you were just saying. Of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, there's been kind of more a, of a contentious issue that has been a few weeks ago that, that um, uh, the, the commissioner on, on racism uh, was in attendance at this pro-Palestine demonstration, uh, but an, an imam, his name is Adil uh, Shark. Sharkawi, uh, during a demonstration on October 28th, a, a pro-Palestinian demonstration, uh, he said to the crowd in, in Arabic, which translates as, O oh Allah, take charge of the aggressor Zionists, take charge of the enemies of Gaza, count them one by one and kill them in the long run and don't exclude any of them. Um, there's been uh, a lot of condemnations um, and, and shock towards this. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, described this as an anti-Semitic uh, remark. Uh, the leader of the Bloc Québécois, Yves uh, François Blanchet, thank you, um, said it was a criminal gesture. And uh, Quebec Solidaire, uh, Member of Parliament Haroun Bouazi, uh, who supports a ceasefire in Gaza, has come out and said that. Um, he also strongly denounced uh, these comments, stating that it was harming the Palestinian cause. Yeah, because, yeah, 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 I mean, that's that's a incredibly barbed words where it's like you're you're not calling for a ceasefire by saying that, right? You're calling for, like, increased violence. Yeah, increased yeah. violence, which I, I think connects to what you said about what comes in diaspora communities from, you know, violence at, at in Israel, yeah, yeah. you're um, feeding. You just feed into the us v them kind mm-hmm. of mentality. Absolutely, yeah. polarism. Yeah. Um, the imam responded, uh, stating that in a video that he had not referred to Jewish people in this speech, um, and specifically was calling out Zionists. Um, the RCMP has launched an investigation into this event. Sure. The RCMP is <laughs> looking into anti-racism. Looking uh, into racists. I think specifically looking into the imam speech, okay. um, I think they're taking it as like a, a criminal offense, That's great. Um, like as uh, 
as the leader of the Bloc Quebecois said, it was a criminal gesture. So I think this is the approach into how the RCMP is looking into yeah. it. I think I understand. I think it's interesting because you have these kinds of statements that are like from like uh, Justin Trudeau, Yves-François Blanchet, Haroun, which are sort of like, they're all sort of towing the same line, but there are important distinctions, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think Justin Trudeau is doing like the Sija Benaibur thing of like kind of conflating that statement where he calls for the murder of, uh, anti- of Zionists. Uh, he calls it anti-Semitism, right? Which kind of, I find that kind of goes in line with the things that Sija and Benai Berth are saying about the, like the email. No, what Justin Trudeau was saying. Oh yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Yes. So Justin Trudeau says that that's an anti-Semitic remark, and the imam is like, no, it's just only the Zionists. Which is like, I mean, like don't don't be calling for murder at the protest. That's like such a inflammatory kind of escalatory uh, yeah. move to do. It doesn't really call for peace. Hurts the movement, I would say, but. Division, and I think it's important what you said about, you know, uh, Palestinian youth movement holding these teach-ins mm-hmm. where it's not creating division. It's, you know, acknowledging that, you know, people might not have the, all the facts. Uh, people have information, uh, misconceptions about the movement, but it's trying to, you know, bring people closer together, have people understand. But yeah, yeah, foster understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. yeah. even journalists don't have all the all the facts, you know, there's like... We know. We're, yeah, yeah. we're seen. Yeah, well, I mean, even like, even like us, other people, yeah. like people like we're at the CBC, who used to be at the CBC. It's like they have this kind of like... I mean, that's the thing with like knowledge, right? You get so far into like... I mean, academics also face this all the time where like, oh, I want to know what there is to know about this and it's just never ending, right? There's so many little kind of angles to go at and at a certain point you're like, okay, maybe that's, that's enough. But it's important anyways to do this kind of teaching to kind of bridge that uh, gap of knowledge because anytime there's that gap, could be dangerous. Could be yeah. people could see that gap of knowledge, and then in, 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 instead of trying to foster understanding, they're just trying to foster more like violence, trying to rile you up, like what this imam was doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one hundred percent. Speaking, I guess, of you know intense reactions and kind of polarism. Uh, recently, a few weeks ago, just across the street uh, on November eighth, there was a kafia sale at Concordia, hosted by Solidarity for Palestinian Human Rights, uh, the Concordia chapter. Um, The money from the sales was announced to go towards providing aid in Gaza. Um, Startup Nation had a booth in the mezzanine uh, nearby the the SPHR sale, uh, where pro-Palestinian activists said that uh, members of Startup were antagonizing people, participating in the sale by postering flyers for Israeli hostages taken by Hamas on October 7th. Um, one person reported uh, being the target of an anti-Semitic uh, insult, uh, an accusation that's strongly denied by the person who made these remarks. Um, I, like the alleged person who made the... The alleged person who made the remarks. Um, I did some kind of investigating uh, after, you know, after this happened, looking at the videos online. Um, I screen recorded a video taken um, from someone who was actually at this event. Um, and essentially this this person is, is being said to have uh, said an, an, anti, um, an anti-Semitic term uh, that starts with C. Uh, they allege that this person said it towards, you know, someone involved in, in startup. I yeah. think the term begins with K. The K sorry, yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm mixing it up because... Um, not, not that I'm an expert. The, yeah, no. <laughs> the, sorry for the mix-up. Um, I, I mixed it up in my brain because the, the person who uh, said the remark um, 
said that they didn't say the K word. They said the, the C word, like, mm. you know, the one they use in the yeah, UK. Yeah, sure, 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 sure. <laughs> I wasn't using the racist one. I was using the sexist one. <laughs> um, we can check out that, that video. I was, getting, I was just like getting coffee at the hive and I was like, oh, a lot of people here. And I was like, anyways, come get my coffee. <laughs> like you're saying I should have recorded. I should have. I don't know yeah. why I don't, I didn't have that instinct. <laughs> Every time I see something, I'm like, oh, for CUTV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, um, it's, it's hard to make out what she's saying, right? Because there's such a, such a big crowd there. But Yeah. 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 Kind of two different takes from two different sides. Yeah. Um, I, I, I almost misses the point of like, which... Which word was said at this height of emotion, right? It's like, I don't know. <laughs> mm -hmm. It seems to be, I don't know if that does the thing of what we're talking about, like bridging understanding, right? It's like, did you say this slur or did you say this other thing? <laughs> like, whichever the case, the intention was, right? To kind of uh, rile the other person up. And I don't know, it's, I don't know. It's, I think this is just another example of how you have this kind of uh, 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 conflict, for lack of a better term, spilling out into like, classrooms into like just like civic life mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it really does spill out into concordia classrooms of course, um of course i mean montreal is, is montreal loves to protest and this is uh i guess an example of that not the loving the protest but just this kind of like very spirited spirited youthful city mm -hmm, yeah. absolutely um you know since october 7th and e even before in events uh you know, uh, rallies around Palestine on campus, um, but more specifically since October 7th, uh, Palestinian uh, activists and, and pro-Palestine activists have been saying that uh, Concordia is not doing enough to support Palestinian students. Um, and recently, uh, SPHR uh, Concordia released a, a statement last week, um, we, we can pull it up on the screen, um, where they had met with Concordia University President Graham Carr um, asking for an investigation into the ongoing attacks. This is him right here. Um, asking for an investigation into the ongoing attacks on students of all faiths and backgrounds and a divestment into initiatives and organizations that fund and support what they state as genetic and, uh, sorry, what they state as genocide and ethnic cleansing of Palestinian people. Um, so essentially students have been saying that since mid-October on both the Concordia and McGill campus, um, they've been experiencing silencing tactics. Um, and I guess, should I read out this uh, statement on yeah. the screen? Yeah, let me do it. Okay, go ahead. This is a statement by Graham, this is a statement by Graham Carr? Or no, so this was published uh, on, the, or... yeah, on their Instagram gotcha, account, gotcha. Uh, essentially just summarizing that they had a meeting with Sure, sure, with sure. Them. So this is a post by SPHR Concordia, uh, we're looking at a picture of Graham Carr in the corner. He's kind of a uh, bald white dude. Kinda, I like his glasses, nice suit. Uh, Graham Carr, president of the president and vice chancellor of Concordia University. And then underneath you have the SPHR statement. On November 16th, two representatives of, the, of SPHR Concordia met with university president Graham Carr 
SPHR and many other student activists have been concerned with President Carr's efforts in recent years to deepen our university's ties to Israeli institutions since learning about his trip to Bar Lan Ilan University in August 2022. But the President has so far not responded to these student concerns. This meeting between Graham Carr and the representatives this meeting offered a very important opportunity for SPHR members to voice our concerns around systemic anti-Palestinian racism and Islamophobia on campus, as well as Concordia's investments in the apartheid regime. Due to the administration's stated intense, intentions to listen to student concerns, we were hopeful that the discussion might lead to some positive changes being implemented. I think it's good that they are meeting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I... I wonder, I wonder, I wonder what it's going to take for that kind of... I imagine what they want is divestment. And I find it's always kind of a, a tooth and nail kind of thing getting divestment from universities, right? Because these universities... Yeah. The university is not just an institution of, like, learning, right? It's also just, like, just a big money sink. Business. Yeah, business. <laughs> I mean, there's so much money floating around because, of like, uh, tuitions, international students, local students are, like, paying that, like, there's just... A huge amount of money and then obviously they usually when anytime you have that they're like where can we invest this where can we kind of make some money off this a lot of institutions make money off of fossil fuels like you've seen divestment of attempts here at concordia i think successful ones here at concordia and then also less successful ones at mcgill mm -hmm. and it's interesting seeing now um uh, i think it's really important to talk about that kind of material things like the investments and i'm glad to see SP sphr kind of uh focusing on that mm -hmm. here i don't think it seems that they didn't get out what they wanted from that meeting, especially in terms of applying pressure on divesting mm. from Israel. Um, from what they said, it seems that they weren't really given a response. Uh, I was just kind of like, yeah, sure, we'll let you in, we'll have a chat. Yeah, I think it's 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 important that the university is, you know, giving the opportunity to speak. You know, as we said, conversations are so important. Um, but I think they were hoping for a reaction in action, um, but that's not quite what they faced. Um, but it's not just Concordia that's, you know, having these kind of difficult conversations on campus and, you know, uh, requesting like an institutional change. Um, also at, at McGill, uh, we can show the next slide. Um, at McGill, there was recently uh, a vote um, in support of a referendum by the Student Society of McGill, also known as the SSMU, um, where 78.7% of McGill students that voted in this referendum um, support, supported uh, essentially um, an adoption of a policy against the, a, a genocide in Palestine. Mm -hmm. um, only 35% of students at McGill that were eligible to, to vote, uh, only 35% of them voted in this referendum. Um, but this is a very high number. Um, yeah, it's hard to turn people out for uh, student elections usually. Mm -hmm. It's always a low vote who turn out thing, mm -hmm. much like municipal uh, elections. Yeah, very true, very true. Uh, SSMU said that this was the highest support for a vote in SSMU history. Um, and essentially, within the the referendum, um, they were demanding that McGill publicly condemns the siege in Gaza and what they call genocidal campaign on Gaza at the hands of Israel. Um, and they asked McGill to divest from corporations, institutions, and donors contributing to apartheid and ethnic cleansing uh, in Palestine and of Palestinians. Um, 
the issue that kind of stems from this vote is, you know, people people celebrated, you know, such an overwhelming support and the fact that, you know, we're going to see change. However, <laughs> the Quebec... <laughs> there, is a, there is a big however. Um, the Quebec Superior Court, um, which we'll see in the next slide, uh, has halted the adoption of this policy uh, until the court can hear both sides of the policy on March 25th, uh, 2024. Um, here it is. <laughs> Here we have an article in CBC News by Holly Cabrera. Quebec Superior Court halts adoption of pro-Palestinian McGill Student Union policy. University has warned student group to stay away from contentious issues. Mm-hmm. And then we have an image right outside uh, the arts building, I believe, uh, at McGill. Students from Concordia McGill University de Montréal held walkouts to show solidarity with Palestinians in Gaza. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it is interesting to note, you know, they're halting it until the court can hear both sides on March 25th, 2024. Yeah. I mean, I know that court can be a slow process, but... It's um, designed to be. This is very slow, um, and people are dying. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think that time is of the essence for many people who are calling for a ceasefire and also, you know, calling for... Uh, an end to economic contributions of, of any kind and, and support of any kind towards Israel. Um, a McGill student who remains anonymous uh, is represented by a lawyer from B'nai B'rith, Canada, um, and essentially they filed an injunction to stop uh, the SSMU from adopting this policy. So, you know, this is where the halt on this, on, on applying this policy uh, has come in. Um, SBHR of McGill told CBC that this sets a dangerous a dangerous precedent for students for, for for sorry student democracy, and undermines the supposed democratic infrastructure of Canadian institutions. Yeah, I got shivers from that. Um, it is incredibly concerning. I find to like have these kinds of this thing that we like to think of as like foundational, right, to like Western kind of a uh, uh, government of like democracy, right? This this thing that like we like to imagine is like kind of coveted everywhere around that doesn't have democracy. You have anyways, and to have something like in, in schools, anytime there's this kind of like these elections, it's kind of like it's almost like it's, it's I don't want to say it's practice because these are real elections. They do set real policy, and I think it would be. Um, it would discount the actual work being put in by these students to call it practice. But there is a, some, in some sense, I think, it is kind of institutional practice for these students to get used to these elections so that as they reach adulthood, as they reach kind of the age of majority, as they participate in, like, local elections, that they're sort of used to the process, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the idea is that, like, every vote counts, you know, however, uh, however many your cause, your campaign can turn out. Uh, if you can turn out more people than the other side, then you are kind of, like, deserving of... To the right to set policy, right? And here we have this thing of like a historic turnout of 35%, which just seems low, but I think in uh, terms of like, um, if you compare it to like other kind of turnouts, I think that is a historic turnout. And the fact that 78% kind of voting yes, I think is like, to me, I think, I think they say usually anything above 75 can be considered like a super majority, right? So you have this wide range of people who are, who are like, I, we believe in this institution, we, 35%, so 35% of people were like, we believe in this kind of like institution of democracy we have in McGill, and I'm going to use this kind of institution as, as is my right to put forward my, my my view that like McGill should adopt this policy that recognizes um, what's happening in Israel as genocide, ethnic mm-hmm. cleansing, uh, that Israel is an apartheid state. 
and you have these people exercising this, right? And then you have the Quebec court being like, oh, let's just, whoa, whoa, don't get too excited now. You know, we have to consider all sides. And I think, I, I absolutely agree that is a dangerous precedent in the set, right? Because like, mm-hmm. I, I don't mean to like snowball and like, what if, because that's like, I think it's, I don't want to extrapolate too much. But like, if you had that happening in like, a municipal election, mm-hmm. provincial election, federal mm-hmm. election, you know, that's like incredibly concerning to think about. It completely undermines the system of democracy for the mm-hmm. court to be able to be like, oh, hold on now, we don't know that this was like just or that we should be doing this, you know? Mm-hmm. Incredibly, incredibly concerning. I know that, you know, in even here in, in Quebec, we, we've had challenges to laws. Uh, one that comes to mind is, is um, I can't remember, the uh, Law 21, um, you know, essentially that, that prevents people in, in uh, public. Uh, government, yeah. public, public service. Public, public servants, so like, I think they talk about teachers, mm-hmm. uh, police officers, judges, and uh, would prevent them from wearing any kind of, uh, I think, ostentatious religious symbol, mm-hmm. symbols, stuff mm-hmm. like that. From, oh. yeah, e- yeah, exactly. So, you know, um, even like a kippah, like a hijab, niqab, mm-hmm. these type of things mm-hmm. from, from working in the public sector. Mm-hmm. Um, at a time where we're facing, you know, shortage of teachers, of healthcare workers, all these things, and and this is being challenged. Um, it's actually still being challenged. I'm not sure if it's reached the superior court yet, but it's it's heading that way. Uh, if it's not already there, um, so I think that we do have examples of this, but. I, I think that this specific example here, you know, it does link to what we've been saying about equating critique of Israel to anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to be very clear to separate the two because when we equate the two, then we can challenge students who are, you know, challenge challenging apartheid and, mm-hmm. and genocide and these things. So how, how far is it going to go? Yeah. I mean, I think this, wherever the decision is going to be, I think the decision is going to be historic. That's going to be like precedent setting, right? Because like on one hand, the one option is, oh, actually, on one hand, this democracy, this, these students exercising their democratic rights, um, that's actually invalid. And because of like, because of whatever might be considered a hate crime or what, because it might be considered hate. And I think you're going to see really now the efforts of Sija, B'nai Birth being tested now, like, because I think, like, B'nai Birth put that injunction for it. I think they know what they're doing because it's like they see this as an opportunity to bring this into the courts. And anytime you have something brought into the courts, it changes the battlefront, mm-hmm. right? On, like, one level, you have, like, let's say, like a cultural war about, like, winning the hearts and minds of people. On another level, you have kind of, like, whatever, like, uh, the war of, like, popular support in the streets, which I b- believe uh, the Palestinian cause has been winning, like, hand over fist. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's recently, there's, um, there's a photo of like uh, yeah. a pro-Israel demonstration in front of a uh, parliament, and it was like maybe like a few hundred. And the one that Palestine pro-Palestine organizers put together was like I think a hundred thousand, mm-hmm. right? So you have this kind of the public support is clearly different now. Mm-hmm. And so I think you have these groups that represent Israeli interests, that represent Zionist interests, trying to bring this into another kind of battlefront, uh, another front line, right? Like I think you talk about like delaying it, slowing it down. Absolutely, I think with Bill Twenty One, very similar. Uh, the case it makes me think of. In 2020, you had the Montreal uh, dock workers who are going on strike, and the dock workers' strike is serious because the dock workers' strike actually affects like, uh, like just the infrastructure of like a whole region. You know, a dock workers' strike affects not only Montreal; it affects like, almost the entire uh, St. Lawrence Seaway, going all the way to like the Midwest, all the way to Chicago, mm-hmm. all the way to Detroit. Right, so you have a huge area affected, and the leverage they they understand the leverage they have. The liberals also understood the leverage they have. And I think before, this is like uh, interesting, because before the, the first, before even the first day of the strike, the, it's about what's, what kind of resources do you have? What kind of legal resources do you have? What kind of lawyers do you have at your disposal, right? And I think 
I think what Sija and Benai Burke might be betting on is that they can they can probably they might be able to win the fight in in courts where they have more resources, more legal resources than the Palestinian organizations do. Do they? I don't know, but I think that is part of the logic of why mm-hmm. you want to bring uh, this kind of like battle between like pro-Israel, pro-Palestine into the courts in mm-hmm. Quebec rather than keeping it into the streets. Because in the streets, they've been losing. Mm-hmm. They've been losing so much. The public mm-hmm. support is like clearly in support of Palestine, at least mm-hmm. in Montreal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, an anonymous member of the SSMU uh, forwarded CBC an email alleging that the Benign Birth uh, and the Israeli consulate uh, were targeting pro-Palestinian protesters. Um, Benign Birth has has denied these claims. Um, for targeting how? Essentially, you know, with with uh, supporting, um, you know, the like the condemnation of of this policy and like taking it to court. Mm, sure, sure, sure. Um, Trying to take the wind out of their sails. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's you know something will continue to follow but you know there's I I know more about Concordia there is specifically a strong history here of activists being silenced you know even when we had um, Netanyahu was supposed to give a speech either 2001 2002 here at Concordia and like huge protests broke out and students were banned from talking about Israel Palestine on mm-hmm. campus for two weeks there's, there's a film that screened at uh, at the hive uh, last week called Discordia which follows that those uh, attempts by Aaron Mate and like other uh, uh, organizers trying to block uh, Netanyahu's visit I think he had students occupying the hall building blocking the stairs so he couldn't go up some people broke windows too mm-hmm. really uh, I mean it seems to be in the Something in the walls here makes people <laughs> people want to be uh, pro-Palestine, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's tons of support here, um, but it's it's unfortunately we're seeing a lot of polarism through. I think you know, uh, equating criticism of Israel to anti-Semitism. Um, so I guess we'll just have to keep an eye, see yeah, how yeah, yeah. politicians are reacting, institutions are reacting. Um, yeah. But I'll be back to talk about it. I'm no, sure. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much for uh, bringing these topics up. I mean, it's like again, I have to stress the point. These are like historic, historic kind of developments, right? I think there's a, yeah, uh, you, you see, just I, I felt like it was like nothing for like years, not nothing for years, right? Because things were still going on, but like this really feels like a flashpoint. It feels like a real like event, and now things are starting to like the dominoes are going right. Now you're seeing yeah. like the forces are like the different like forces at play are like, all right, who's kind of stronger? Where, where do we have influence? And you see them exercising that influence in places. I think uh, in places and intense, at an intensities, I did not expect, right? And I think one example is like, let's say like at a municipal level in Hampstead, at uh, the level that the superior court gets involved with a student election, I think to me is like wild. Yeah. It is, yeah. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, bringing these on. Thank you for uh, coming on to the show. Of course, thank you for having me. Of course, of course, of course. Hello, Goodbye Lines. Uh, would like to thank our uh, sponsors. We have none. <laughs> So. I was going to say CUTV. <laughs> I don't know. So if you want your name there, you just send me a check. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, take care, everyone. <laughs> hey, welcome back to Metropolis. My name is Colin Datsuba. It is still December 6, 2023. Uh, we're back on the main show with Drew Oyeje. How are you doing, Drew? Hello, hello. Things are good. Hello, hello to you as well. What are we? Uh, I was going to ask you what we're talking about. I know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Today we're talking about uh, Dominic Olivier's resignation. We're talking about um, migrant workers in Montreal, as well as the CRTC. I don't know what they were up to. Just going to tell us later. First, Dominic Olivier resigned last month. 
she was the uh, president of the executive council of the uh, Montreal municipal yeah. government, and uh, she resigned. Oh, the I have become a distraction. Uh, resignation. Yes, yes. The classic. <laughs> so yeah. all right, I'll show myself out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to compromise the fine work of my colleagues by, exactly. by remaining. Exactly. Um, yes, it is a well-worn format. Mm -hmm. um, why don't you tell us a few details about what, what happened with... Yeah. Can, we, can we look at the first slide? Go to... No, we don't have. We don't have. <laughs> Never mind. No <laughs> now we have. We've seen all the slides. All right. So Dominique Olivier was. Uh, Here's Dominique Olivier. There you go. Dominique Olivier. She was elected to uh, uh, city council. Mm -hmm. I think in like uh, 20, 2018. 2018 for uh, Projet Montréal. Mm -hmm. uh, since then, she has become. She was served as the uh, uh, was it uh, the lead of the Montreal. Uh, the OC, OC, Montreal Council for, uh, the Public Consultation mm -hmm. uh, Council. And since then, she became the president of the Executive Council. Uh, and she resigned because, like you were saying, she was kind of becoming uh, a nuisance, a liability, because the, uh, this, uh, not the current Executive Council, but the body uh, of government she used to kind of be in charge of was found to be spending a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I think some of those include like $700 meals, kind of lavish. 350 Three fifty? Yeah, not bad. I just inflated that. I was thinking about what I had last <laughs> night, maybe. <laughs> yeah, you've yeah. been you've been dining at Shea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, exactly, the exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, CUTV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, so she's been kind of um, uh, accused uh, of uh, kind of uh, overspending these uh, kind of public expenses. I know uh, the Denny Cadell team has uh, called for her resignation, as well mm -hmm. as other people um, on the uh, who who are in charge of the Metro. Public consultation office. One thing I actually didn't notice is what what do you know what borough she represents? I think she was uh, I think she was in Plateau. Okay. I think Plateau. I could I could be mistaken though. Cool. Um, no, uh, Rosemont. It was Rosemont and Petit Petri. Close, yeah, very yeah. close by. They are plateau there. adjacent. Yeah, yeah, similar vibes. The new Plateau. <laughs> yeah, literally, yeah. Um, plateau ten years ago, maybe. Um, yeah, I mean, my thoughts on this are that are um, I guess a few things. Um, one is that. Um, you know, I, th I think these things obviously get sort of blown out of proportion. I think it's like a $300 dinner now and then. It's pretty standard. Mm -hmm. business, like There was like 70 business dinners at uh, Chez Alexandre, I think, in like one year. Honestly, that seems kind of standard too if you're, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't actually know the circumstances. She mm -hmm. provided the details. She didn't try to defend each budget line, probably wisely. But... Um, but you know, if you're a functionary who has a deal, whose like job it is to like maintain relationships with people and um, and make things work, yeah, you're going to have a lot of dinners, uh, and you're probably going to pay for a lot of dinners. Mm -hmm. Unless you know, um, whether it's with your staff or with um, other people, um, I feel like that kind of stuff is almost. I feel like I hear about like three hundred dollar dinners or like yeah. even like uh, like would you say seven times or. How many times? 70. 70 times yeah. a year. So throughout a year. I find like on, at like a provincial or federal level, it seems kind of like more reg like normal, but I guess there's... That's like one and a half times a week or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I guess there's something about it at a municipal level that people feel is uh, uh, excessive. I don't even know. I think, I, think, I, think, I think these things just become... These kind of budget lines, these expense items, when they become public, just become, I think, you know, uh, an easy target. Like right, right. there's like, a conservative minister. Was it Bev Oda? Um, like, I don't know, this is in the Harper years, so like, I'm dating myself here, but um, I think she paid for like a $10 glass of orange juice or something. 
And now I think that's pretty standard now, yeah, probably. That's, that's what I think of. That's orange juice. <laughs> little thimble. They're like $10. I'm like, all right, here's but, a 20% But it was, like, it was literally national news. Of course. Um, but it's like totally out of proportion, right? Like yeah. you're talking about people who are like handling, you know, multi-million dollar budget lines. I mean, at the federal level, you're talking about people who are handling multi-billion dollar budget mm-hmm. lines. Mm-hmm. Nobody... Nobody should, if they were thinking proportionally to impact on taxpayers, you know. But but it's kind of like a smoke, there's fire kind of like PR move, I think. And it's just an easy way to score political points. It's like it's not relatable, I think, to the average person to like go to Shea Alexandre 70 times a year. Yeah. So it's like, That's oh, not, look what they're overspending yeah. while eating. They're probably overspending in government, too. Or is yeah. that kind of suggestion, you yeah. think? Yeah, and, and then the, her successor, I think the OCPM, was, was saying, like, oh, this is, this is um, you know, the, the, the office was badly run and said some vague things about that. It may well have been. I don't actually know. But I think, I think it's, it's a bit of a cheap thing, and I think, mm-hmm. but it's also hard to take that stain off, you know, once you've been in the papers. So it's like, okay, the, then it's like journalistic integrity. Like, okay, are we going to, like, pay attention to that? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a it's a newsworthy thing, and you you know you you probably do have to if you're a public servant you do have to justify those things. So I'm not saying it's like overly justified, but I but I would I guess I'm just trying to temper the like outrage meter. Sure, you know? sure, sure. Like sure. one, like I can totally see how if you're um, in that situation. I don't know if the three hundred fifty dollar dinner was like for a bunch of people, mm-hmm. in which case I don't know. That's like a one fancy dinner. Yeah, that's deal. a lot of orange juice. It's a lot of orange juice. <laughs> <laughs> it's only 35 orange juices. I mean, if you're having orange juice with 35 friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a night out. <laughs> it's easy to spend that much. But anyway, the point is, <laughs> the point is, you know, you can make something sound like anything. So, so I would, I would temper it on that side. And, and I would, and I would, I think in her defense, uh, you know, ascribe a certain amount of, you know, um, racism and misogyny to this the, the tenor of this whole mm-hmm. outrage. Yeah, because she, she's been receiving kind like, of very racist kind of calls for resignation. Right? Yeah, well, she, that brings she, in she her... made a point of mentioning that. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. Um, and I, do, I know, see no reason to disbelieve that. No, um, on the other hand, I guess I would just say, not from a personal perspective, but from a systemic perspective, you know, uh, when you're, a, you know, a high level functionary in a neoliberal machine that totally lacks imagination and is advancing a planet-killing agenda, um, you know, you got to have some kind of consolation prize, right? Mm-hmm. And I think for, for the sort of <clears throat> enlightened professional neoliberal functionary, a nice meal yeah, right, of is that, right? I mean, you have, you know, um, I don't want to draw a direct comparison, but in like authoritarian regimes and stuff, you have people on on speed, doing cocaine, all these things, mm-hmm. and they're carrying out these horrible atrocities. Right, right, right. Uh, right. That's and, kind of the uh, and it's the, it's the, the palliative. The, yeah, for or that. in the corporate world, same thing. Like people, you know, you're you're uh, cheating thousands of pensioners out of their stuff, and then you're snorting coke off the yeah, marble yeah. bathroom sink or whatever. Like of this course. is like a this is like a, yeah, a caricature yeah. at this point. I mean, you don't even have to cite a specific example. But and I'm not saying any any of the people in Montreal are doing that. I mean, I'm not saying they aren't either, but um, we'll find out. <laughs> but what I am saying is that is that people who are, um, you know, who are in these sort of in the softer version of, you know, presiding over these total disasters and having to like energize and motivate themselves, 
um, you know, a really nice gourmet meal at like a fancy restaurant is the sort of consolation prize. And I happen to have a little bit of a window on how, you know, people who work in like even the, the staffing jobs at like bureau um, at the um, borough mayor's offices, mm-hmm. for example, or like um, or other sort of functionaries, you know, the, the sort of upper echelon of those, the ones who are paid well, will spend a lot of time at, you know, the, the local nice restaurant. They'll, they'll be there all the time. Like, mm-hmm. And that's their sort of, um, it's the sort of, it's a, it's a motivator, but it's also sort of a stock and it's sort of, sort of a currency, you know. It's a thing that, that creates a shared experience, it creates the sense of community. I mean, food does all these things, right? Of course, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'd say, uh, you know, gourmet meals are... Part of the fuel of 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 the neoliberal doom spiral that we're in. I see. I see what you mean. So, yeah. like, let's say, like, we're imagining at like the kind of most exaggerated end. It's like Wall Street. It's like mm-hmm. we just made a deal where we're like we're raising the price of like children's insulin like twenty yeah, times exactly, over. Exactly. Now we're gonna celebrate in some bathroom, do some like coke, and that's kind of like. I mean, you might even be doing it during the workday because you gotta you gotta you gotta power through whatever moral qualms you might have. Right, 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 right. And so I guess I guess a lesser hedonism is just kind of like, let's go out to like fucking yeah. casual spall and get some steaks. You know? Yeah, it's a more refined version. Yeah, yeah, more refined, respectful, you know. You're, you, can, you can say you're taking part of like the kind of local culinary yeah. kind of like scene. You're getting to enjoy the fruits of the gentrification that yeah. you've helped kind of uh, uh, make happen. Exactly. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think, I, I think it's way more socially acceptable. It's, you know, uh, but it's... Um, but it has a similar function, I guess yeah, is yeah, what yeah. I would say. What's the most expensive meal you've had? Um, gosh, I don't, I don't think I've gone over 70. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I remember one time uh, with an ex, we went to a restaurant, and like the meal was like $300. I damn near passed out. First time <laughs> I had ever eaten like that. I was like, I, was like, I don't belong here. No, no, no. But <laughs> there is this kind of like thing that I guess I like mean, that... Sorry, I was saying seventy per plate. I, I should say, you know, obviously, if you're with the okay, yeah, okay, yeah, you're, okay, yeah. You're, you're, you're I was like, I was like, damn, who's living this Spartan life? <laughs> <laughs> Not so much. It's like Big Macs tonight, fellas. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay, yeah, sure, sure. And that is, yeah, I guess we're we're in like a, a similar kind of ballpark yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, there's something about these spaces that I find so kind of. Um, I guess, I guess, I really like that kind of comparison of the, the extreme end of like kind of like this consumption to like uh whatever like lesson or kind of tamp down on like what moral qualms you have for kind of being and for steering this kind of like neoliberal ship of like whatever like devastation right yeah. and on like maybe like you can imagine like whatever like american empire being like the biggest ship and then the smaller ships of like mm-hmm. whatever municipal governments it's like you still have that kind of like that yeah need or desire to kind of like oh am i doing the right thing and uh, oh let's let's just like let's just have a nice lobster right? yeah I think, yeah, I think you need like a pleasure currency, like some kind of something to like motivate you on a, you know, on a basic hedonic level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you also need like a social value indicator currency that makes you feel like, oh, like when you're eating at a, you know, two tiers up restaurant, mm-hmm. um, there is sort of a, your, your place in the social hierarchy is being inscribed yes, yeah, yeah, in that yeah. moment. So you're, you know, you're looking out at the people going past, past to go to the shawarma place. Yeah, yeah, and you're yeah. like, yeah. Look at them. Yeah. <laughs> Look at them out there in the cold. Something like that. I mean, I, I, think there, I, think that, I, think, I think that is a way that we, we create the self-identity of being in a, in a sort of elite, mm-hmm. uh, but also... Uh, the um, we indicate to each other of course, that yeah. we're in that s- situation, mm-hmm. um, and so the fact that it tastes good and makes you feel good 
is you know is just one of those. One yeah, of the yeah. Another, another thing is like, oh, I went to Joe Beef last night, or I went to like a beer. Oh, you know that new trendy restaurant is like actually I was there. Yeah. You know, with a lot of people. Yeah. You know, we spent a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. And it's, and I, I'm definitely not saying it's not okay to enjoy good food, but of course. But 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 I think in the context of power structures. I think we have to understand it. Um, the other piece that's interesting is is that uh, Luc Rabouin from the from the plateau uh, is is their new replacement as chair of the executive committee. So um, I'm curious if you have any any reactions to that. I mean, there's kind of a significant kind of um, I guess elevation for Luke because people mm-hmm. call that uh, the uh, the president's chair of the executive committee. They call it yeah. the second most powerful uh, seat in the municipal government. Yeah. And you could you could call it a meteoric rise. He came yeah. in. Halfway through the last term, so he's barely. If if he has completed a full term, he's only barely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's been a quick a quick yeah, ascent. Uh, yeah. It's gonna be interesting seeing what they do with that because I haven't like uh, out of the policies that they've been putting on like the plateau. Most of them, I'm like, oh sure, it's kind of like mm-hmm. in light agreement with. But it's gonna be interesting seeing what he does with that kind of like this new level of uh, of, yeah. of influence as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know Luke, but I, I get the sense that he's he certainly associates with per- various progressive actors mm-hmm. in the city. Uh, and I think it probably has at least some something of a reputation as a progressive within the bigger structure of Project Montreal, especially since they've started courting, or you know, um, I think two two cycles ago they started courting, uh, you know, former CAQ, you know, MNAs for their <laughs> for their for the for the suburbs. So um, so within the within the overall structure of, of Project Montreal, I mm-hmm. think there is an opening there um, for progressive forces to have a little more of an open. Uh, but but then again, uh, progressives in that situation will often have to have to demonstrate how not progressive they are. Right, right, right. Once, yeah, one of, one of the compromises of reaching yeah, that power yeah. is that you got you got to let go of some of that stuff. Um, but but yeah, I mean, what I mean, on a completely hypothetical level, just in terms of how power works, I'm not saying Luke is going to do anything in particular, but um, or that I expect anything from it. But um, but having. In, in theory, having a progressive in that in that kind of situation, you know, when you're presiding over a budget of um, seven billion, seven billion, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, like the basically the table scraps are you know are in the millions, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you can just like write in a little tiny tiny budget line for um, you know a million dollars of community organizing, mm-hmm. you know, dressed up as a some kind of community consultation or something. Mm-hmm. Would honestly could honestly transform the city mm-hmm. in in the right context, you know. Um, so, so you're in a funny situation where um, where having having that sort of you know progressives and with access to levers of power has tremendous potential, even if you are talking about the tiniest. You're not going to triple the housing budget necessarily, and like cut the police you know budget to the bone. That's mm-hmm. probably off the table completely. Mm-hmm. Um, just because of the power structures that they're dealing with and the, the identity of the party and the electoral strategy and everything mm-hmm. else. But, uh, but yeah, like... There's still room for... Getting, uh, get, yeah, getting, getting $2 million for uh, some community organizing, mm-hmm. maybe a study on something that could like create huge leverage for something else. Like, there's all kinds of things that are on the table that mm-hmm. are, yeah, potentially transformative on a, on a sort of a 10-year horizon, I think. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting seeing the, what becomes of that. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I should say that I have absolutely no expectations of, of Luke doing that because I've been disappointed by so many people with his exact profile 
in the past, but I but I do think that there, there that is there. You know, the chance is there. Yeah. The chance is there. The path is there for uh, him to take that. Yeah, we should have him on. Anyways. Yeah, Luke, if you're out there, Luke, if you're watching this, <laughs> yeah, before, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, let's go on to uh, next topic. Absolutely. All right, terrific. We have the all right. So. This is, uh, so for our viewers at home, right now we're looking at a photo series from, that was published in Cult Montreal. Uh, these are photos by Tamara Abdul-Hadi, uh, documenting the lives of Montreal's undocumented workers. And so we're looking uh, at a picture of uh, Bakhar Singh and his family. We have uh, his wife, two children, they're sitting on a couch, nice lighting. There's a big, uh, a very large, uh, what's it called? Stuffed husky. No, not stuffed. Not taxidermied, like... Uh, What's a plush? A little, yeah, little plush, plush, a little plushy husky. Uh, yeah. So essentially, um, the topic we want to talk about uh, that this photo series I think um, starts to give image to is migrant workers in Montreal. Mm -hmm. um, you have this thing of like this increasing portion of uh, specifically something like agriculture. Um, uh, agriculture, especially, I think, relies a lot on like migrant work. I think if anyone is at the airport, uh, there's been a few times at the airport where I've been there, and I see like, uh, I think one, one time I, I went to pick up a friend, and she came off the plane from like Guatemala, and almost like everyone from the plane immediately went into this like van, and then like mm -hmm. she went off. I heard them talking, and they're going off to like work on a farm, and then yeah, like yeah. they stay there for like whatever the season, and then after that they go back to Guatemala. Absolutely. Yeah. And you have this kind of work. Um, some people call it. Uh, surplus labor is very kind of like you have these like floating populations of labor that start to like become a huge support for an economy mm -hmm. because for whatever reasons because local labor is too expensive because and so on and so forth and this is just a quick easy way to get people working on your whatever at, at your work site and then after that you're not really like responsible liable for them in any kind of long-term mm -hmm. capacity um, there's so many, so many dimensions to talk about uh, migrant work yeah. in uh, Canada. Uh, I think in Ontario this year, you had uh, some Jamaican workers who were working at an agricultural um, farm who uh, were comparing the conditions to like modern day slavery. The UN even kind of had to get involved and they made a statement about the conditions of, uh, uh, of their workplaces. Um, unfortunately, I'm not sure kind of what happened to that, but there's been this incredible... Uh, Incredible in like uh, in a sense of like what like importance uh, focus on uh, migrant work. And mm -hmm. I'm uh, curious as to your thoughts on it. We, there's a lot to cover, but uh, yeah, what do you, what do you what do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, so yeah, I mean, migrant workers um, sort of fit in several categories. So like on the one hand, you have the sort of general like people who are immigrants who are like trying to get residency or trying to either be refugees or they're or they're actually you know. Um, Registering as immigrants and and then working toward naturalization eventually and usually, um, and then you have um, temporary foreign workers, which is which is uh, Canada is actually on the cutting edge of like um, like uh, highly rationalized neoliberal exploitation of vulnerable populations, basically. I thought you were going to um, say, I thought you were going to say something good. <laughs> something good. I thought you were going to say yeah, we're, we're, on the, we're on the cutting edge of. Um, of basically taking people who are in desperate situations, often because of Canadian foreign policy, or at least in part, there there are people who are fleeing, you know, sort of security forces uh, working for Canadian mines who are displacing them from their land, who end up as temporary foreign workers. That's mm -hmm. totally a thing. Um, but often, you know, 
uh, is more more generally as part of the system that Canada's broadly involved in globally in terms of like um, keeping uh, third world or uh, you know global south economies from developing from being able to uh, exercise control and instead making them basically like resource and commodity colonies uh, and also sources and consequently because that when you do, when you create that kind of situation you um, in you know in in a in an economy you end up um, you know in in um, you know, in like a Mexico or a Guatemala or a, uh, I guess Venezuela is a different case um, because of the sanctions. But um, but you end up with um, a you know a suppressed economy that's exporting cheap you know natural resources mm -hmm. to places like Canada uh, or cheap commodities like you know bananas, chocolate, whatever, bringing it here to process, and then we're you know the the money on that on those items is being made here, mm -hmm. and so there's not a lot of money going there, uh, and their economies and their and then they're heavily dependent on imports because they can't get enough of a of an engine, economic engine going to to get their own to get their own you know manufacturing sector or whatever going uh, and so yeah you end up with these huge group you know people who have been displaced from their land because of plantations or whatever else uh, certainly that's the case with Mexico um, who are poor and need work and so instead of bringing them in as migrants because Canada generally in the migrant category is, is more interested in a certain amount of refugees for sure, um, but a much more interested in people with a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's why you, you've probably, probably met somebody with an engineering degree driving an Uber or a cab or something, or, um, you know, because those are the people with a lot of education, a lot of money. And so they're, they're like, Canada's like, yeah, come on over. We'll mm -hmm. do the brain drain thing. We'll take your, your best and your brightest and we'll put them at the lowest rung of the Canadian economy and they can, you know, figure it out. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, ones, while the, ones, they, the, while the real they, talented ones will work their way. While out. they spend their savings trying to get, get, uh, get, get up the ladder, um, their savings, you know, from the from, other from country. the yeah, exactly. other countries. Um, but temporary foreign workers are, yeah, a different, a different situation where they either brought in, they basically have no rights. Um, I mean, they don't have no rights, but they, they are, they, they don't have labor rights. Right. Um, the way a, a landed immigrant or a Canadian worker does because they because their um, ability to stay here is contingent on their employer's ongoing interest and consent. So if they go on strike, all the employer has to do is say, "Well, I'm sorry, see you later." Yeah. Back to I'll get you know, I'll find Mexico, some other people. Guatemala, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so yeah, you have this underclass uh, that's that's sort of legally being integrated into the economy, and then next to that you have undocumented workers who are sort of the unofficial version of that, which is mostly how they do it in the U.S. They don't have as much of a temporary foreign worker situation as far as, as far as I understand. They just have a lot of people who are undocumented who are working and getting paid, you know, less than minimum wage probably because, mm -hmm. because they're vulnerable, because, um, you know, ICE or whatever uh, in the U.S. can come and knock on your door and just take, rip your take away your kids, take mm -hmm. away your, <laughs> put you in cages, yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah. whatever they're going to do. I mean, and, and, and the, and the enforcement mechanisms are, are very much sort of created with that in mind to keep, to keep, um, I mean, the temporary foreign workers are, are kept in this state of insecurity because, um, just structurally. Um, but then, the, but then the enforcement mechanisms are what keep the, the other sort of population of migrant workers, uh, sorry, undocumented migrant workers. People are here, um, illegally, mm -hmm. um, um, you know, 
in a state of precarity and fear, mm-hmm. uh, which helps keep them from like organizing complaining or complaining about their or work complaining about their work course, conditions. And so, as a result, you have horrific work conditions mm-hmm. and ridiculous hours and just a total lack of any kind of like labor standards uh, that gets the, applied to this this under, underclass that is that is very much like been created by Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, these people yeah. are essentially invisible to any kind of like labor laws that we have, invisible to the state. Yeah. Except for like the, the only visibility they have to the yeah. state is to the like the, the the bodies that we have that want to get rid of them, right? That want to get them yeah. out. Because otherwise any kind of like to to recognize them as whatever as like kind of like human beings who are in mm-hmm. deserving of rights would kind of like maybe I think I think in the state size uh, potentially uh, not be good for the economy and then there's also mm-hmm. I, find, I find there's the other angle as well about like when you have people as like when you have uh, politicians and like bodies that try to make immigration this contentious issue mm-hmm. like we don't need we have too many immigrants right like do you think like so you'll see polls there like you think Canada has too many immigrants and if I it question it like the, the, the question is always posed, I find, in like a bad faith way where like, you know, do you think we should have this many immigrants when we have a housing crisis, you know? Do mm-hmm. you think we should have this many immigrants when we have like this issue with like mm-hmm. how many mm-hmm. like, uh, 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 whatever, like how, how, how burdened our healthcare system is, you know? Do we want to have more people here who are potentially sick? No, no, no. I find it kind of, it, 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 it's almost like, um, it's like a trap question, right? Exactly. It's, it's not really yeah. about. It's not really about that because it's more about the systems that we have. It's like we do have enough. We have the resources to have enough housing. We have the resources to have like people like Fed and stuff like that. And it has much more to do with this kind of mindset of like trying to keep this place like insular. And because because it's like the the walls to whatever like liberal or like uh, uh, a legal kind of extent are being drawn up for these immigrants. Naturally, it's like you still. What happens is instead of working, instead of getting immigrants into uh, Quebec, into Montreal, and like having them be. Uh, added to whatever like mm-hmm. r- workforces that are like legally yeah. recognized that are yeah. seen by the state that are given protections and are given like uh, like social benefits instead now w- w- with the desire to have less immigrants that some conservatives and other kind of like nationalists have then you have this thing of like okay like we're not going to have these people become like naturalized we're not exactly. going to have them become yeah. citizens but we still need the labor right and so instead yeah. it's like what you're, what you're saying right you have this kind of like growing underclass of like people who are like were like ostensibly like immigrants, aliens from another. I, I, I use that term. In the, I don't actually think they're aliens, but you have these people who are coming from elsewhere yeah, to course, work yeah. here, but then they're they're never given any of the same rights, right? So I, I find when I hear about this kind of stuff, to me this kind of ties into that kind of like grand like whatever like national more conservative project of like less immigrants. We gotta like. Uh, uh, we we have to have less immigrants, but we still it's a problem where we still need like the labor yeah. for these kinds of things, and you still rely on their labor, but you don't want to give them you want to give them much less benefits for it. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, I, I think I think the you know without the the it, it's a it's a very clever tool I think of the of our illustrious economic administrators uh, of sort of pitting people against each other yeah. because when you hear about you know, migrants who are coming here and working for, you know, I don't know, half the minimum wage, maybe less, um, and for longer hours for in absurd conditions like sleeping in bunks. Multiple jobs. Yeah, multiple jobs. Like, um, and, and, you know, um, yeah, of course you're going to be like, yeah, they're taking our jobs because if somebody has a has a has a a, cho- a boss has a choice between hiring somebody for half the amount working twice the hours versus, you know, somebody with uh, the ability to unionize, mm-hmm. protest, you know, grieve, etc. Um, they are, it's clear where they're going to pick, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but the sort of, 
I think the obvious answer that results is like, oh, we'll send them home, right? Um, as opposed to, you know, you have to you have to take a few more steps to get to the point of this guy's shirt here, uh, you know, uh, status for all, basically, mm-hmm. where you say, oh, okay, well, if the issue isn't the presence of people from other places here. The issue is they've been denied rights mm-hmm. uh, and that we're creating an underclass. And, and, you know, that underclass is based on, you know, linguistic, ethnic, racial lines, but it's... Um, but you're still, but fundamentally, the reason that they're <laughs> getting paid less is because, yeah, they're being denied their rights. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, and and if and if that was if that element wasn't there, but that's but you, you need you, you need you need to have a, at least a ten minute conversation to get to that point, and that's and that is exactly why all newscasts have five minute segments, right, right, right. basically. Um, so um, it's sort of like it kind of reminds you, you know, like the was it what's his name. John Oliver, John Oliver show last yeah. week tonight. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like people, the complaint about that show is like he kind of has all these like really great in depth kind of like investigating, you know. But it feels like it always stops short of like yeah, 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 like yeah. A more harsh oh, critique. Right, yeah, yeah. We got it to the gates and never yeah, stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah this totally. will stop. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, and we but we won't stop. Um, <laughs> won't stop. Can't stop. <laughs> can't, can't stop. <laughs> um, we no, but you know the the the, the basics. I think there's sort of a left wing version, which is very. It's not that much hard to articulate, but it's a little bit harder to articulate, and it's and it's very hard to get into the into the press a version um, of all of this issue. Yeah, there are sure, some sure. activists who have done a pretty good job of of uh, you know like um, I think the yeah the Migrant Workers Network mm-hmm. uh, out of Toronto, but across the country, I, I think they've been a really concerted effort to get that message out, and I think it's working mm-hmm. um, to some extent, but. But yeah, you're always gonna you're always gonna get more airtime as like a anti-immigrant firebrand who's like controversial. Yeah. Like if I if I say status for all, I mean that is controversial. But nobody's gonna like put me on TV being like, oh, this guy's being controversial. Yeah, yeah. But if you know Pierre Polyev says something about you know fewer migrants, all of a sudden it's like, oh, controversial. And I mean, then, but and then of course that's going to appeal to a huge number of people sure, sure. because they're like, yeah, I agree with that. Um, you're, you're, because, comparing, because, you're comparing yourself to a, the leader of a federal party. <laughs> I am comparing myself. No, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying anybody who sure, does sure, that, sure. right? Like, yeah. um, um, I, I could be the leader of a federal party if I, uh, <laughs> if I was December sixth, twenty twenty three. Exactly. Um, no, but I'm, like, if you know, if if I was uh, if I was given that like that level of press coverage, right? Like mm-hmm. anybody could, right? Um, but. But the point is, um, but even like marginal figures on the on the right, right? Like I mean, Pierre probably has a bad example because he's the you know the number one political party in Canada. But um, but 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 you know, like an Ezra Levant or like sure. a um, um, you know Maxime Bernier, you know, mm. um, will get a disproportionate amount of, of coverage. And, and I think that we see this played out across the like across the mm-hmm. Western world. It hits, where, it hits certain liberal like, sensibilities. Yeah, these far right, you know, they they, they 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 can attract a lot of attention. Uh, whereas the the left, I think, because yeah, we, you know, because yeah, I mean, it's interesting because because you you should you should theoretically have firebrands or people who are saying controversial stuff mm-hmm. in in terms of global solidarity <laughs> who 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 could get 
you know, who could shock the sensibilities of the, of the liberals, but the liberals tend to just ignore them. Right. Uh, and the people who run the media um, tend, to, tend to not take that bait. Mm-hmm. Um, they just kind of like, oh, that's weird. Okay, then. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, funny, it's a, it's, it's a funny distinction, uh, uh, which I'm not trying to wrap my hand, head around in real time here. But um, uh, all that said, yeah, like a status for all framework, um, I think has a lot of intuitive value, but it, mm-hmm. you know, it, you have to work 10 times as hard to get it out there is, my, is the point that I'm trying to make. Uh, and there are people, you know, um, props to all the people who are working 10 times as hard to, and being with some success, I think, um, yeah. You know, it's always, I, I find like migrant rights issues in Canada specifically, I mean, it, it, there's, such a, there's such a focus on it, on like what they kind of offer through their labor for the economy, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's, to, to me, it is kind of like this big thing that like, I feel, I feel it's not really talked about enough in terms mm-hmm. of like labor as like because like if, if like labor is like this core thing to like leftists and to me it's like there should be like I don't, I don't know this is I'm just kind of like complaining about I find the I find there should be much more like attempts with like unions these kinds of groups that like have traditionally kind of represented like labor rights in Canada mm-hmm. to have that kind of extension right but instead it becomes this kind of like insular thing about protecting what they already have that's yeah. that's like a whole nother discussion yeah. but yeah i know thank you for bringing I mean, this up I, I just just as a sort of final piece um if you look at um i mean i think you like coming back to the sort of previous topic you know like all this all this sort of like upper echelon sort of service sort of economy stuff you know like who's washing the dishes in those in shags i mean i'm gonna call out shale exam by name but you know, in, in that tier of, of restaurants or yeah. that oyster bar, the unnamed mm-hmm. oyster bar where they spent 350 bucks, um, you know, who, you know, who's washing the dishes, who's doing the deliveries, who's, um, gathering the food or mm-hmm. like processing the food that's like going into those places. Like, um, there's this, there's this whole, I mean, the, 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 the engine of the neoliberal economy runs on this sort of like super precarious labor. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole world that we, sort of see presented to us uh, is like if you, you know, if you open up one of the like little side doors and like look in what's happening in the back, you're going to find a lot of probably non-status workers or temporary foreign workers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, doing that labor uh, and for, for, a, for, a, for a pittance. And that's, that's the fuel uh, right, of, right. of this economy. And I think... You get more labor from them for less. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, and I think there, you know, there, there's a there's a better way to do it, but um, but it involves confronting the whole the whole system and like looking at where the wealth is pooling mm-hmm. uh, and where it's sort of where all that where all the wealth that's being generated is going, because it's not to those people, it's not you know, it's and it's not even necessarily to the to the sort of mid level functionaries uh, like ourselves who are you know accessing those services from time to time. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Here we have a quote here. So for those uh, listening, the quote says, Quebec had around 290,000 non-permanent residents as of July 2022. According to data released in December by the Provincial Statistics Institute, and the figure has since risen past 300,000. So yeah, there you go. You have a, a trend, upwards trend continuing of uh, non-permanent residents. Uh, and I think it's in the, the, the migrant workers has gone up um, I don't know what the most recent figures are, but it's but it's been like on a steep trajectory. It's mm-hmm. been I think it doubled over like five years at one point, yeah, uh, and it's and uh, you know I think it's probably getting close. It just in Quebec, probably 
inching toward the, the six-figure mark. Yeah. Um, yeah, in Quebec, yeah. I feel like the, the, the areas you'll see them in, in like Montreal specifically, a lot of them will be at these kinds of warehouses, right? Because like you have, yeah. since, since specifically the, um, since when the Evergreen uh, kind of became stuck in the Suez, you had like a lot of mm -hmm. conversations in like the logistics kind of uh, industry that I was talking about. Because the, the model they've been relying on is called like the just-in-time model, kind of popularized by yeah. uh, Japan and Toyota in the 80s, where it's mm -hmm. like things were just delivered right when you needed them. Yeah. And that was the kind of what the whole system was kind of built upon. And this kind of showed how uh, the, the Suez uh, block kind of showed how uh, fragile that system is. Yeah, I think uh, a lot, some economists are saying, not economists, but uh, people who are working in the logistics industry and for one of the companies are saying it's like, logistics industry is like, a mile long, but like a quarter inch thick, and they're talking about like that mm -hmm. kind of like uh, mm -hmm. issue with it. And the uh, one, one of the conversations came out of that was like the, you had these companies who were relying on the logistics industry talking about how they can try to like change and adjust to avoid this kind of uh, disruption yeah. in the future. And one of the things that they're talking about was the reliance on warehouses, right? And I feel like you especially see that with like companies like Amazon, yeah. other companies like Canadian Tire, and like uh, uh, like a bunch of companies who are trying to mimic the Amazon model, right? of like having things like delivered like the same day. And usually that would mean you need a center, some kind of processing center in the city. And you see a lot of these being built, right? These massive warehouses. In Longay, we have like, mm -hmm. like a brand new Amazon warehouse that was built. Yeah. It's like huge, huge. And this is kind of the thing that allows for them to have stock of all whatever, like a significant portion of their inventory so things can be delivered the same day, right? But then what that system relies on much more is this kind of like uh, 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 whatever like a po population of like yeah. people who are like willing to just work this kind of very like tough menial job of like sorting and stuff like that and a lot of times these are going to be recent immigrants migrant workers uh, people who are, might be undocumented mm -hmm. as well and then and then if you once you go out into the countryside if you look at agriculture look mm -hmm. at forestry i mean increasingly to to be competitive like you have, uh, you know, a business owner who's you know doing any of those things will have to, um, uh, you know, hire migrant workers. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 a part of the problem there is, it, you know, why they can't hire local laborers because they can't afford it. And part of the reason for that is that uh, real estate is a commodity, <laughs> mm -hmm. and that um, you know because Canada is well-situated in terms of climate change and also just being a sort of stable, wealthy country. Um, lots of people want to buy, you know, big chunks of agricultural and rural land um, in order to do whatever, even if it's just a hold for some kind of future contingency. Um, and so the, the price has gone up, and so to access land is almost impossible, I think, for like a, you know, somebody who's like a recent graduate of like an agricultural school wants to go like start a farm like you have to like rent for like an exorbitant fee mm -hmm. and then okay if you want to scale up how do you do that you, you like you know pay people a living wage or like you know from the area mm -hmm. you can't like yeah. it just doesn't make economic sense um so just you know just that anecdotally like you know we had we we got apples from like an apple delivery i think from like a local orchard and of course you know um you know the, the people i was buying the apples from are you know Spanish-speaking, in any case, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and speaking Spanish with the the owner of the orchard, <laughs> and oh, so yeah. it's like um, this is like really common, I think, at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, not not to uh, you know, it's it's hard to like fault any one person, but you certainly can fault the policymakers who mm -hmm. who who are creating the conditions for the extreme exploitation of people. I mean, I think often you know people try to treat those. The, those workers well but like it's on a it's on a spectrum right mm -hmm. of like what's the standard for wages 
uh, and so on. And so, um, so of course, you're going to end up, you're, you are exploiting them um, because the, that's the system that's been put in place is to, encourage, up to, to encourage you to do that, mm -hmm. um, to be quote-unquote competitive. Mm -hmm. yeah. I know. Concerning. Concerning. Next slide, please. Here we have a quote from Jean-François Roberge. <clears throat> yes, temporary immigrants can help us meet temporary needs. But in the meantime, they are living here and we cannot tolerate that. They are anglicizing Quebec at a time when we have a problem with the French language. So here we have the language debates. A classic, fun stuff. A classic of... Uh, I guess there just isn't enough of a surplus population of Francophone migrant workers to bring in. Yeah, yeah apparently I not. I mean, there's... A lot to unpack here. Um, I mean, here, I guess, before I was talking about, like, let's say, this conservative national kind of opposition to uh, immigration. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a good example of that, where you have yeah. this idea that, like, I guess in his terms, um, the concern here is... Sans pas comme nous. Oui, c'est ça. Sans pas comme nous. Sans pas comme nous. Il parle pas comme nous. So, Jean-François Robert's concern here is specifically not about labor. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It's specifically about, I mean, maybe it is about labor, but then it, has, it wears this language, mm -hmm. uh, uh, this face of being concerned about language. But ultimately, his point here is that migrant, immigrants, temporary, temporary immigrants here in Montreal, uh, I mean, he doesn't say Montreal, but I think yeah. usually the implication is Montreal, other urban centers that have uh, large portions of these. Uh, I mean, there's a reason why Montrealisation is like, or Montrealization is like an, you know. A bad word, basically. And oh, I never heard that term. Oh no. Okay. Yeah, it's 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 just like a it's just like a sort of a coded way of saying, uh, you know, uh, we're scared of diversity, basically, or okay, saying, sure. oh, we don't want Montrealization of Quebec City or right, know, okay, Montrealization sure, of the regional uh, that we're in. Or so much all these cosmopolitan plays, we don't want that happening. Yeah. Other parts of Quebec. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, this is. I mean, I think I th the. To, the more the more charitable version is like oh there's a bunch of like Anglo students and that's annoying yeah. um, you know who come in and don't learn the language and you don't care and just you know go to, go to the clubs and then go back to Ontario after four yeah. years the less polite version is yeah of course it's like a there's a lot of immigrants there etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah it kind of gets to yeah. hit the same marks I mean you do see the kind of tuition hike I feel, I feel like mm -hmm. this also ties into the kind of tuition hikes uh, as well them trying to kind of Tamp down on the this kind of like whatever transient Anglo student population. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's what it reminds me of. What do you what do you what do you make of this? Anglicizing Quebec at a time when we have a problem with the French language. I mean, the basic premise that we have a problem with the French language is, I, I think, has been shown to be a little bit on the dubious side. Like, I don't think, you know, I I, I certainly think that people have the right to. Um, to worry about the French language and to try to preserve it and to and to and to make it the sort of you know you know whether it's the the, the public uh, you know lingua franca as it were um, <laughs> but um, but uh, it's that shades so easily into sort of anti-immigrant rhetoric yeah. and and of course this is this is a sort of uh, less direct or oblique. You know, it's like a bank shot version of like uh, appealing to sort of xenophobia, sure. um, and in, in terms of this anti-immigrant sentiment, because obviously that's slightly frowned upon. Um, I mean, it still happens quite a bit, like shocking to a shocking amount mm -hmm. in in Quebec discourse, but but I think it is frowned upon to a certain extent. 
uh, especially when you are trying to, you know, directly, I mean, other than the sort of norms, directly appeal to some of these, you know, immigrant populations yeah. to, uh, or, you know, more recent immigrant populations to, um, to win your elections, right? Um, so what to say about that? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's self-explanatory, but, um, but it's like, yeah, if you want, if you want people to speak French, uh, you know, like, are you speaking out against the temporary foreign worker program that is bringing people in temporarily to mm. when they don't even have a chance to learn yeah, French, yeah. exploit them heavily, and yeah. then send them back? Bring them in, let them stay, give them some French classes. It, well, exactly, right? Like, yeah. if you if you want people to 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 like adapt to your you know cultural norms and your laicite and whatever else mm-hmm. and your language, like, yeah, the obvious thing to do is to like let them stick around yeah, uh, and give them some of those sweet, sweet labor rights that many of us enjoy. Absolutely. Is there another slide? There is. Who's that on the screen? <laughs> oh Who's that? What's familiar? The glare. Um, so, Drew, you were... Uh, is this you I'm looking at on the screen here? That would be me, So yeah. I'm uh, for our listeners. Yeah, I'm looking my, at a... my moment in the sun, as it were, on CPAC. <laughs> so, uh, for our listeners, uh, I'm looking at a screenshot from uh, CPAC, our, our favorite... Uh, very boring station that is incredibly important. Uh, this is uh, the, the the crawler reads CRTC hearing public hearing on developing a framework to support Canadian and Indigenous content. And in the middle of the screen, speaking uh, is not. Let me read that name tag. I think that says Drew Oyeje. It does say that. Yeah. yeah. So Drew, you're in uh, you're in Gatineau. What, yeah. What are you talking about? Yeah, I took a little trip to Gatineau last week. Um, and uh, yeah, so I was there as part of a delegation of five different um, community TV um, representatives. Um, there was a you know people from across the country basically, um, uh, but you know to to the two heads of the federations, Quebec and Canada federations of um, independent uh, community TV stations, um, and then two th- I guess three stations represented one from uh, uh, Quebec, uh, one from. Um, Montreal, which is us, um, and then another one from New Brunswick. Um, and so we were collectively there to basically pitch the CRTC in the context of, um, so, so basically the, the federal government passed Bill C-11, um, which is the sort of a big amendment to the Broadcasting Act that basically defines um, some of the big streaming services as broadcasters. Mm-hmm. Um, so they... Um, and, and then taxes them, uh, and then and then creates content requirements. Streaming services such as uh, Netflix, for example, Amazon Prime, uh, probably YouTube. I'm not sure uh, how this is all going to work, but mm-hmm. um, but yeah, um, but in that legislation, we CUTV um, taking the lead, but but community TV stations across the country participating um, created a campaign uh, called Rebuild Community Media, uh, which you can find at rebuildingcommunitymedia.ca. That's rebuildingcommunitymedia.ca. Yeah, uh, please sign. Um, so um, so we were actually able to, to pressure the government to get the law changed to define community TV for the first time. Um, and because it wasn't defined, uh, because the community element wasn't defined, um, community TV went from from getting like as much as 10% of the revenues of cable companies, which as you can imagine is a pretty hefty sum, mm-hmm. 
distributed to like 300 different station, local stations across the country um, to, you know, first, and this is basically what I told the commission, I was said, you know, the CRTC is the one who's in charge of implementing that. And so they went from 10% of revenues, not just profits, but mm -hmm. revenues down to like 5%, then from 5% to 2.5%, mm. from 2.5% to 1.5, I think, percent. And then from 1.5%, they just, uh, I think in 2016, they removed the requirement altogether. And they also made it so that the cable companies don't have to disclose how much they're giving. Mm. And so overnight, a whole, but I mean, so yeah, a whole bunch of community TV stations in, in, in major centers across Canada were, were closed. And then more recently in Quebec, um, you have Ma TV, which is supposed to be the sort of in-house community TV of Videotron. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so basically what these cable companies did is that instead of, instead of giving it to independent community TV stations, they just sort of took it from one pocket and put it in another and mm -hmm. said, okay, well, we're doing this in-house now. Uh, and we're calling whatever we want to call in, you know, community media, we're just going to do that. And, you know, the CRTC was so thoroughly corporate captured, um, was such a thoroughly captured regulator um, that it went along with that. Um, but now? But now. Uh, so now the situation is a little bit different um, because we were able to pressure the government to actually define community TV. So they can't just, I mean, they can still do it. We didn't define it exclusively, but we defined it inclusively. So stations like CUTV are actually part of what it means to be the community element, as it were. Um, so, yeah, so we're in a situation where they have to give us at least one dollar. One cent, maybe? I think they could probably get away with one cent. In total? Yeah. Um, <laughs> or a hundred million dollars. Oh. Or somewhere in between. Okay. So we're That's asking, cool. so I was there as part of a delegation asking for 70 million dollars mm. to basically revive, so the, you know, uh, community TV in Canada went from um, 300 stations to 30 stations over the course of that trajectory of cuts that I was right, telling from, you about. Yeah. Going from 10%, 5%, to exactly. 5%, right, right. Yeah, so that those cuts resulted in, yeah, the, the you know, and, and a lot of them are like these little communities that are like funding their community TV through like bingo, you know, running mm -hmm. bingo halls here, you know, on a regular basis or whatever. Like yeah, this we should is, start doing that. This is, yeah, we should. We have to see if we can get a license, but um, <laughs> coming soon to Metropolis. Um, uh, B seventy <laughs> four. That'll be hour three. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Hour hour three of Metropolis yeah. will be the most exciting uh, by far, <laughs> uh, and the most lucrative potentially. Um, anyway, so. So yeah, they're running on bingos basically. So yeah, we're trying to basically rebuild the sector mm -hmm. um, in the era of cable subscriptions just going in nowhere. In a whole different uh, broadcasting um, landscape. Completely different broadcasting yeah. landscape. You're competing with the entire internet yeah. um, and everything else. Uh, and so yeah, everybody's trying to eke out that audience and trying to figure out how to get their stuff in front of people. Um, and also, you know, get some money to like make it in the first place. Mm -hmm. And actually CPAC, the station that I was on, was is actually that basically. It's like um, as part of their as part of their public interest requirement, cable companies have to fund CPAC, mm -hmm. which, you know, broadcasts like parliamentary hearings, committee hearings, mm -hmm. CRTC hearings, like all these different things. Uh, so you can turn on your cable TV and be like, oh what's 
what's going on in my where the crook's up to my burgeoning democracy today sure, you know sure, like that's what, another way to put it what, <laughs> <laughs> what's going on i mean this is the interesting thing about canada that i just have to like note every chance i possibly get which is just that like you know the amount that we spend on like an entire federal election is like the amount that uh you know um the u.s the u.s political system spends in like i don't know yeah like literally in the yeah. snap of fingers yeah, like you yeah, yeah. like uh like walking around an, an evening of political ads on tv yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like eclipses like the entire we, you know federal election campaign spend budget we live a parties. we live a provincial existence compared to the u.s yeah but it's an incredible opportunity i mean we Absolutely. have absolutely a more democratic system than most of the world and and i think i'm shocked at how few people take advantage of it mm. um like the fact that a few people you know working you know obviously we got gathered a pretty impressive coalition of groups on board but a, but a few but really you know it's just a few people really pushing hard mm -hmm. uh, we're able to like actually change federal legislation and not just like around the edges like a key piece of like uh our media system mm -hmm. is now fundamentally different because <laughs> because of the work of a handful of people yeah because a handful of people just like mm. took an interest and like pushed you know and put some instagram posts up and got some signatures and got you know had some meetings with 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 their mps i mean i think it's it's incredible what can be done right of course um, coming back to the luke rabouin thing it's like okay like if 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 i just if if if, if like five people made it their mission for the next three months to like figure out how to get Luke Rebellant to do yeah. X or Y, yeah. uh, or like set aside a million dollars in some budget, some sub, sub, sub line of a budget, you know, uh, you know, amazing things could happen. Maybe some fancy meals for him. Yeah, we should take him to Shea Alexandre, <laughs> um, buy, buy him some nice oysters yeah, in yeah. Paris or whatever it was. Um, uh, I mean, you could do worse, honestly. It could could be a good investment. Um, but um, I'll cook him a meal. It'll be it'll be cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get the uh, we'll tap tap the the social movement network and see if we know any yeah, yeah, any yeah. Uh, oyster farmers out there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Who can, can fly in some uh, fresh fresh stock. Um, anyway, um, so that's the CRTC. I mean, basically. We're, so 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 I I didn't even get to. The, <laughs> I get so caught up in all the the arc of it, but basically what I what I sat there and told these so 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 after the, this new legislation came in, you have a situation where you have um, uh, uh, the minister writing a pretty strongly worded letter to the new CRTC, mm -hmm. um, who, who's you know supposed to be turning over a new leaf and basically saying the CRTC, like in the letter, public letter to the CRTC commissioners says like the CRTC has a pretty crappy re reputation. Like it has, it, it is seen to not be responding to civil society. It's mm -hmm. seen to be- Lagging uh, behind. Yeah. not not paying attention to independent actors. I'm basically talking about community TV, among mm -hmm. others, I think. Um, you know, probably talking about indigenous communities and stuff, too. But, um, but yeah, you, you, have a, you have a bad reputation, basically. He, mm -hmm. You know, he said, this is Pablo Rodriguez. Um, now it's um, Pascal Sainange, I think, uh, who's the, the relevant minister. But, but in any case, their mandate is pretty... It's, it's spelled out in the legislation. It's spelled out in the mandate letter, in the policy directive... 
Like it's it's all there. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of took them to task because they put out a consultation. They didn't mention community TV once mm -hmm. in the consultation. And so we were sort of saying like, hi, like <laughs> we're in the legislation, we're in the mandate letter, we're in the policy directive, like like let's can we get some respect here? Mm -hmm. um, and so I was a little more direct uh, than maybe some of my colleagues. Uh, I felt like somebody had to play maybe not bad cop, but uh, assertive cop. Um, maybe not a cop at all, but maybe that's a terrible metaphor. But um, <laughs> but in any case, you know, I, I wasn't like you're bad, but I said you know your predecessors are awful. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, Here's a chance for you to and not you be have awful. A do, yeah, you have a chance yeah, yeah. to be to do something different. That's a good um, pitch. <laughs> I tried, you know. Um, I, was, I, I wanted it to be strongly worded, but I didn't want it to be personal. So I, I, did, I did my best. Nice, nice. Uh, but hopefully, we get seventy million dollars for community TV. That would be nice. You know, you know, uh, at what pace we can expect this news? Uh, what? I think uh, the checks in the mail, honestly. No, um, I gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it's gonna be. It's gonna be probably. I don't know. There's three phases to the to the consultation. So this is the first phase, mm -hmm. and of course, um, you know, the people in the room before us were like Rogers, of course, naturally, and 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 where, whereas we each got five minutes, uh, Rogers would have like five people who would each get ten minutes. Wow. So of course, the scales are already tilted yeah. out of our favor, um, but we made the best of it, and mm -hmm. I think I think we'll probably have to do some public pressuring of the CRTC to to try to consolidate whatever wins there are to be won. Wow, incredible. It's an inspiring thing to hear what uh, can be salvaged from this democracy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, there's, a, there's a lot we can do around the edges while yeah. we're waiting for mass movements to rise up and become deeply organized. Yeah, um, yeah. We're, not, we're, not, we're not there, but there's a lot we can do in the meantime. Do you know what, uh, has there been any comment from like streaming services on this kind of uh, legislation or these consultations, you know? Honestly, I'm sure there has, but I think... Um, I think that's probably coming in in phase two and three. I think okay. they're, I think they're going to talk about like sort of yeah, how are we going to like regulate or not regulate, and what is the appropriate amount of, you know, flexibility slash direct mandate that we uh, or you know, where on that spectrum do we want to, mm -hmm. when you know, when you're telling Netflix what to show on its front page, for example, do you like, you know. You have to you have to be clear enough to be like it has to be this much Canadian stuff or whatever it is or this much indigenous stuff, but do you um, do you tell them exactly how to do that? And if you don't, are they gonna like put it on like a one pixel thing that you have to like search to like right, hover over to like see it or and say oh that's on the front page mm -hmm. or you know I don't know you know like no, there's, of course like how how do you how do you how much wiggle room balance? are they gonna have? Do those that balancing act of you know being clear versus allowing uh, companies to sort of make decisions about the best way to present things. My suspicion is that these companies will not want to play ball because I, I feel like you've had. Yeah. I, I feel like you've had. It's not necessarily. Um, this speaks more to like let's say like news and like these yeah. uh, internet kind of giants where you have like Facebook, right? Meta, who kind of uh, kind of ask uh, news uh, news coverage in Canada. They give like so many like big big publications like the CBC, mm -hmm. CTV, all these other. And I mean, and really, I mean, people who are watching this will probably be aware of this, but like now you can't like access that kind of news in yeah. on Instagram, on Facebook. You can't share those kinds of links, right? Um, and also, this also makes me think of uh, a previous attempts in like uh, Quebec legislation mm -hmm. that was trying to get Netflix to produce more Quebecois content, right? And I feel like this is kind of a this continu uh, a continuation of that kind of like uh, demand from from Canadians, different Canadians, Quebecois, kind of wanting 
some representation, some kind of access mm-hmm. to this, like all this money, because it's like our money that like these companies are funded by like Canadian dollars, right? Mm-hmm. And so like I think I think there's a fair, I guess I guess uh, claim or request that's like, hey, we want to be at least in some kind of a control, or we have some, want some say in uh, how that money is used for content that kind of represents us. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. It makes me think of like. Um I mean, it's sort of before my time, but I, you know, access it through something like Mordecai Richler's like Barney's version. I don't know if you've read that or if anyone's read I it, have, but I um, but it's you know, he's the the main character is basically this guy who makes like total schlock TV that's funded by like you know CanCon like Canadian content funds. So mm-hmm. he's just like this can CanCon schlock peddler who like runs a TV studio. Uh, you know, in in like the I don't know East Montreal or something, and mm-hmm. like and just churns out these like like low quality stuff. And I feel like Netflix is like perfectly geared to like basically be a channel for like a right. new version of that, right? Like we're gonna get the like you know, Barney Podofsky of the yeah, like twenty the twenty twenties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's gonna emerge uh, uh, from from this deal inevitably. Um, but you know, hopefully, some people can run run with it. I mean, and I guess to bring it back, like this is why we were there advocating so hard for the community element because the the definition that we got into the legislation is um, is not just like community, but uh, community is defined as including um, uh, you know independent companies that are democratically run um, and locally based mm-hmm. um, and nonprofit. Um, and so I think when you have that, when you have that mix, that that those criteria in the mix, um, you yeah you can actually you you have a you have a reasonable shot or at least the potential to create some very vital um, programming that's really responsive to um, pe- members of a community. Incredible, incredible. I think uh, I think that'll be the episode, Drew. All right. Thank you very much for uh, coming on. Yeah. Any any, uh, any any final things to say about uh, what you've been seeing at CRTC? Uh, no, no. I think I think that that sums it up. Thanks so much for for having me on, Calden, and uh, look forward to the next time. Once we get that seventy million, it's gonna be a lot different here. <laughs> <laughs> Big studio audience. New, new, new set. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, gonna, mm, I'm just I'm imagining it right now. Oh wow, wow. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for tuning in, everyone. Uh, take care. Enjoy. Uh, Enjoy this nice snowy day. And now the producers are telling me to wave. (laughs)